0: Other takers,
1: huh, Paul? Well, I'll talk. I got some. Yeah, I had yeah, another yeah. CRC minister that I wanted to Great. get in, but he couldn't Great. do it either. It's this time of year is hard on clergy. So yeah. Um uh, welcome body. Uh this is <laughs> hi, this is Paul. And we have a, a really special live stream today for a while now, especially the Roman Catholics in our midst have been pestering me to get Larry Chap on the channel. And when this <laughs> um when this same sex blessings thing came down. I thought, I don't know what to think about this. So at first I grabbed Kale. Now a lot of people complain because they say, well, why isn't father Eric on here? And my reason is father Eric is a young priest and I'm not going to put him in a position right. to right. say something that's going to in any way impact. That's right. I mean, I'm an old guy. Larry's an old guy. Yeah. Kale is getting older. <laughs> so we uh we can i'm
2: i'm retired and i'm retired i don't have to worry about anybody firing me
1: that's right right. so that's that's why father eric is not here i love father eric and i respect him um as the day is long but i am not i respect him and love him so much i'm not going to put him in an awkward position that's right so that's why that's why father eric is usually not on these um these chats where we go into stuff about the church now I um unfortunately I I haven't done my due diligence to get Larry on for a Randos conversation. He doesn't even know what a Randos conversation is. That's right. That's right. He does not and he doesn't even know what my channel is. So he doesn't know anything about this corner. So he is he is getting uh he is getting baptized here into the corner this morning. But so right. I have to do some due diligence by Larry, one of the things that my channel started, I I started this YouTube channel talking about Jordan Peterson. I had all these people who wanted to talk to me. And because I'm a pastor, I was talking to a lot of people offline, and then I was recognizing there was a fair amount of repetition coming on. So then I started recording some of the conversations with permission and sharing them on the channel, and that just made it all go further. So I do, on my channel, there's a significant number of people who who are – they, they come to the channel that sort of created an online community because there's a whole bunch of people who are known. And usually what I do is I do an hour or two with people just about their life. Now, we don't have that kind of time today, but I, I do want to get a little bit of background on you. In fact, more than a little bit is yeah. usually. Tell me, tell me, Larry, about um, the household that you grew up in. Did you grow up a cradle Catholic?
2: Yeah, I'm cradle Catholic. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh and my father was a fireman my mother was a stay-at-home mother i had uh, four other siblings it was a typical sort of 1960s late baby boom uh generation very middle class very suburban a very typical modern midwestern american and so we were cradle i was cradle catholic but uh my family's catholicism was very lukewarm i don't think my parents would mind me saying that now uh you know we we got Catechized. We didn't go to Catholic school. We went to catechism, got the sacraments, um, but pretty much religion was not emphasized at home at all. So it was a pretty and, and standard thing. And and I pretty much through most of my youth thought religion was just a gigantic, colossal bore, something to just endure until the day when I could just walk away from it all. Uh, but then I, you know, I was kind of an eggheady intellectual kind of kid. And so I I was into big ideas and big things, science and philosophy and literature and stuff. So I started reading my way back into Catholicism. It was started reading *Mere Christianity* by Lewis. He turned me on to G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton turned me on to Cardinal Newman. And then all of a sudden, I'm back into the Catholic fold and thinking like. Then then off to seminary I went. Decided not to be a priest. Got a Ph.D. at Fordham University. Uh, Then job at sales University in Allentown Pennsylvania in 1994 retired from that in 2013 now I run a Catholic worker farm there there's my life
1: wow <laughs> that was that was fast and that's that's way too fast for me so <laughs> I, I have I have more questions I have more sure. questions um tell me about a career in Catholic academia what was that like
2: uh well you know for me and I can only speak for myself since I was I was teaching at a small Catholic liberal arts school in the Lehigh Valley near Allentown, Pennsylvania, Uh, and it was a sort of of middle-of-the-road school in terms of Catholic identity, neither woke or progressive or whatever you want to call it, nor super conservative Catholicism where every professor was Catholic and all the students were these, you know, self-ident... No, it was kind of a middle-of-the-road sort of place, kind of like Catholicism I grew up with. So it felt very congenial to me. Uh, and I I loved it. I, I I spent 20 years there. And the only reason I eventually quit was because I wanted to start this Catholic worker farm and it wasn't possible to do both. And uh, But I absolutely loved, I, I thought when I first started that I was going to want eventually to move on and, and teach at an institution that had PhD students. But I discovered that I was very, very good at teaching undergraduates. Uh-huh. That, and that I loved teaching undergraduates and realized that was my calling in life. And and so I I, I just loved that I got tenure and all that. But I was not happy with the broader Catholic academic world. And, and, oh. and you might be inquiring about that. The broader Catholic theological guild uh, from the late, from the 60s on th- up until today even, was yeah. dominated by liberal Catholics who thought that the Catholic Church was full of it and needed to essentially become, uh, your, some of your viewers might like this, essentially become more like the Protestants. You know? The, well, and Mary,
0: what did that mean specifically? Because, you know, one of the things that I've learned living, living here in the corner with, with Paul and the gang and all these various types of Christians is that, you know, when I was more of a ghetto Catholic, I had a kind of a very low resolution sense of what it meant to be a Protestant. And, 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 even, and, and so then when I started to poke around a little bit, there's all kinds of different ways, but when, when, when you, but I know exactly what you're talking about, Larry. So like when you say you had a bunch of colleagues who wanted to quote unquote, make it more Protestant, what did that like mean for you? How do you sense that? Cause I think this will help Paul and the audience a little bit.
2: Well, not colleagues at DeSales. I want to be clear about that, but right, just right. colleagues in the broader theological right. guild, uh, well, what it meant to me when I would look at it is number one, was an extreme de-emphasis on the, the sacramental priesthood. Right. Uh, that uh, ministry needed to be less sacramentalized and more of a concept that you find in Protestantism of the minister as a kind of facilitator or presider of worship more of an academic thing, uh, leading them in, you know, worshiping via the word and so on. Uh, and, so, and just, in other words, to combat clericalism, we needed to, right. in a sense, attack the, the very notion of a priesthood. And what was being attacked too was the very notion of hierarchy. Hierarchy is bad. The pyramidal structure of the church is bad. Right. Papal authority is bad. Dogmas are bad. All right. So so Paul,
0: in, in your world, Paul, it would be more akin along the lines of like high church, low church, um, sort right. of vision, right? So it's a, a kind of a leveling down, you know, you know, uh, a hyper allergy to two speedism, you know, and um, in, in, into a more of a congregationalist uh, uh, pole right kind of being pulled in that kind of direction so so anything that's smacked of old fashioned or or uh, vertical or hierarchical was um um old school like let's leave this stuff behind let's let's get you know to the people so you can see how it would kind of mesh then a little bit with a kind of um countercultural uh, you know secular counterculturalism or a little bit yeah. more of a more of a a, com- a cozier relationship
2: i actually had more in common with uh, high church Presbyterians, high yep. church Anglicans, right. high church Lutherans, right. and so on. So you pick your pick your tradition, Anglican Reformed or Lutheran. If it, The high church people in all of those traditions I had far more in common with than I did with the low church Catholics. I think right. that's a great way to put it, Cale, mm-hmm. for, for the viewers and listeners to understand what the theological guild became after Vatican II was a call for the Catholic church to become a kind of low church congregationalist sort of thing. And there's in some sense those are good there, there are good yeah, qualities to right, that right, but right, that's right. not why I'm a catholic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to what to what degree is this a part of americanization because mm-hmm. you know it's one of the things that we talk about on this channel. I mean catholicism for the United States was the great enemy. They feared of course the French, they feared the Spanish. And and so nationalism and Catholicism were, you know Amer- America was definitely a Protestant nation, Protestant dissenters, uh, Catholics were to be feared, of course. Catholicism in the in the 19th century really starts to take off. There are, I mean there are I mean there are violent, I mean people look at, people look at attacking African-American communities. There were attacks on Catholic communities. I often remind people too that. You know, the Klan hated three people. They hated the yeah. Blacks, the Jews, and the Catholics. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's helpful right. to understand that this is a part of American culture too. And so especially then in the 20th century, um, with, I would imagine, all of what's going on in Europe, and of course the counterculture gets going, that It's not surprising that you're going to have these tensions within the Catholic Church. It's interesting that a lot of this stuff is also coming through academia and not, let's just say, through populism and sort of American culture leeching into Catholic life. So is is that a part of this tension as well? Yeah,
2: oh, it's a huge part of it. I mean, yeah, people need to remember the history of anti-Catholicism. I think it was the third Archbishop of New York City, John Hughes. Uh, they, they built a new convent in New York City, uh, um, a vigilante group of angry Protestants burned it down. So John Hughes then advertised in the New York Times, said to the next Catholic institution that gets burned down, we're burning down the following Protestant institutions. Oh, and, and yeah, this is John Hughes, a bishop of New York City. Uh, and the, the burnings essentially ceased at that moment because john hugh but that you know all it's kind of funny to us now in retrospect geez they really took things seriously back then but there there was this legacy and then when the immigrants the catholic immigrants irish and so forth there was this great desire to leave all of that garbage behind especially after world war ii and to mainstream into the dominant american culture there's a great book by will herberg you know called the american way of life and, and you know and 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 uh, called Protestant Catholic Jew, and his argument in there is that didn't matter what religion you were Jewish, Protestant, Catholic you morphed into bourgeois, suburban American, which in some ways was kind of to become a kind of evangelical Protestant in some ways, right? Uh, which beca- and there was another great book by William McLaughlin called the, the Great Awakenings, in which he sort of makes the case that American religion, even in its Protestant iterations, has been a kind of pan-Protestant lowest common denominator sort of thing. Uh, And I don't know if that's true, but I was always smitten with that idea. And and so, yeah, that plays a role. But I think that more than all of that, I think what affected the Catholic academic world was two things. It was the feminist movement and the sexual revolution. And so what was driving many Catholic theologians after the council to take on this low church persona is that they really wanted to undermine and undercut uh, dogmatic, moral, and gender teachings within the church. They wanted women to become priests. And so we needed to attack the church teaching on that out of largely feminist sort of presuppositions that no matter what the church's sacramental theology is, the fact of the matter is not ordaining women Relegates them to second-class status, and therefore, by secular standards, they need to become priests. And then the other thing was the sexual revolution. We need the we need the contraceptive pill. We need to start let, lightening up on cohabitation and things like that. Uh, and now, of course, homosexuality. Uh, and so we need to undermine the church's sexual teaching. Uh, and so I think in, I like to say, in many ways, it was a set of conclusions in search of arguments. More than anything, and the conclusions were: we need to become more mainstream American, more secular, more in tune with modern feminism and and sexuality, and off we went.
0: It strikes me, Larry, just real quick, Paul. It no, strikes me that you know you talk about the the conclusion in search of an argument. It, it's not unlike what we've been noticing in the the headline in search of an article. You know that there's a you know there's a way in which yeah. the headlines are doing the work, which I think will dovetail in what we. We'll probably get to with Paul and, and the rest of the live stream later on, but there's a sort of an inversion there of that process.
1: It's last week we did a we did a live stream, actually. You you very could have been on last week's live stream too, because the title of the live stream was Is American Conservatism Crypto Catholic? Um huh. because I I picked up I picked up an argument from Aaron Wren. Aaron Wren is a very interesting Protestant who, one of the few Protestants that has paid attention to the fact that I think the thesis about this, this sort of, um, because Protestants are so fractured Protestants then tend to create these alternatives, sometimes even implicit institutions or agreements that allow Protestants to work together to, to act like a, um, to, to act basically to create a spirit that will allow them to govern a society. So instead of, let's say, having, you, you don't have, you know, you have Billy Graham is the, is the spiritual advisor to how many presidents. Um, you, you have this WASPy, you, you know, America was, was very much driven and led by this WASPy coalition. And as you say, in the Second World War, this emphasis to bring Catholics and Jews into the coalition. And but what we've had really, I mean, the one of the most well-known people from my tradition, um, Kristen Cobez Dumay, writes this book, Jesus and John Wayne. I I was I first heard she was writing this book. I thought, oh, good, someone's taking a look at this. And I looked at the book, I thought, this is not the book I was looking for. Because for me, the 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 big news is not that people's religiosity and their nationalism get intertwined that that i simply expect the big news is what happened to waspy america and these elites yeah and and then what's been interesting is how you know how catholics have kind of come in and and so then so then the group of three protestants are talking about it and they're basically saying well you know the the, the evangelicals who always get shot at on the news by the progressives, they're the foot soldiers. The real brains behind all of this are the Roman Catholics. And it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. And and so, yeah. I mean, we were talking about that last week. And I think that does very much fit into at least the, the, the crazy thing. The thing that when Protestants look at the Roman church that is tough for us to realize is just how big and how old and how global, and how massive that is. Yeah, A lot of Protestantism, especially in America, tends to be very local. And denominations are these, like my denomination, it's sort of a historical coalition. But those things don't last very long. So my denomination is a little over 150 years old. And in many ways, it's breaking down and it will probably end in the next 25 years just because a lot of what held it together were the the values and the ethnicity of dutch immigration. And so then beyond that we sort of get absorbed into the broader non-institutional but religious quasi church thing and what the roman catholics have actually despite all of the drama you have within your institution you actually have a container that gives form and shape and identity, whereas, you know, Protestants are just sort of generic Christians out there. I don't know if that sounds fair.
2: Well, no, I think that's very fair. Uh, that Catholicism has this this unique thing that not even, say, a, a more uh, bishop oriented denomination like Anglicanism possesses. We have this thing called the Pope, which allows us to have this transnational fulcrum upon which all, or or hub, I think better way, all the spokes of the church revolve around this, this hub. And it's that hub over the past centuries that has kept the church from flying apart from the various centripetal forces that tore Protestantism apart. All right, that that Protestantism had no hub. And so any that would happen to any religion. It happens to every religion that doesn't have a hub that just flies apart. And you end up with all this kaleidoscopic uh you know pluralism within it. And so uh Catholicism had that unique thing called the Pope, and then of course, then the bishops on down the line, and so on. That can, however, and that's all true. So your distinction is correct. That can, however, mask over the fact. That in many ways the unity is merely a paper unity, Uh, that the differences run deep and profound. And like I said not too long ago, I often find that I have much more in common, both not just in theology, but in terms of how I approach the world through my the eyes of faith. I have more in common with many of my Protestant friends and brothers and sisters than I do with many of my Catholic co-religionists.
0: Right, and Paul, that that you know, for me, you know. uh, i think that would explain my attraction to the corner right that 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 you know i have in certain weird ways more freedom to kind of be and say and speculate and think out loud here than i would say in the theology department at villanova you know or or you know because uh for all intents and purposes. And I know Sam was kind of giving us the business, giving me the business last Friday, tongue in cheek, of course, but, you know, um, you know, what is a Catholic, right? We were talking about that last week and it's like, well, you know, it's, there is no, um, it would be hard, again, I'm sort of picking on Villanova because it's just on the brain and Villanova's fine, like whatever, right? But it's, it's, it's not, it's not, Catholic, right? In other words, I I would have a hard time finding someone who would like believe, you know, in the supernatural claims of the broadly speaking, of the Christian faith, much less sacraments and sacramentals and demons and angels and spirits. And I mean, you know, forget that. I mean, you know, so all of so much of mainstream Catholicism is is really effectively no different than the kind of liberal wing of. The presbyterian church which might explain then a little bit why you have all this wailing and gnashing of teeth about um, gay blessings or or women yeah. in priesthood it's because there's lots and lots of sort of like methodist envy um amongst the academic um catholic set and i'm i'm not just locating that in in, in theology departments i would say that that's largely true of i mean i i i would guess that you would have a hard time finding a practicing you know, more than a handful of practicing Catholics in, like, say, a, a, an English department at fill-in-the-blank Catholic University. Wow. M- much less a theology. I mean, you know, Larry yeah. w- would be able to speak to the, the- theology well, guild a little yeah. bit more than I get. But in other words, it, it, it's really easy to say the sort of the Catholic and name-only thing because, like, I, it, I'm i not making a sort of hyperbolic joke, right? Right. So therefore I can come here into this corner with you guys, Paul. And and it's like, Oh, okay. I can like actually talk about Jesus. Like I can actually talk about miracles. I can talk about, you know, these
2: kinds of things. Go ahead, Larry. No, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to, I'm a cheerleader here. So go ahead and finish.
0: You know, so, so the, the, you know, you talk a lot, Paul, about the, you know, sort of the breakdown of the, 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 the iron box of modernism, right? Well, in many respects, almost every Catholic institution in this country lives and moves in the iron box of modernism. Hmm.
2: Absolutely. I was going to say that the, the, the dividing line is no longer so much, I think, along old fashioned reformation confessional right. lines, you know, all the various solas, all sola the scriptura versus tradition and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Those are all still important theological things that we can discuss and in inter you know, ecumenical dialogue, de doo The real crisis is a crisis of truth, and and Pope Benedict Joseph Ratzinger constantly emphasizes it's a crisis of truth. And so the great divide is no longer between Protestant-Catholic. The great divide is amongst Protestants and Catholics between the idea that Revelation brings us objective truths about God that are non-negotiable, are the bedrocks of our faith, that even though the dogmatic expressions thereof are historically conditioned somewhat, there is an objectivity to them that transcends time, history, and subjectivity. There is truth, and that truth is the truth of Christ revealed to us in God in his scriptures. And then we argue about, okay, how how do we do that? But the bottom line is we agree. There is an objective truth about God communicated through Christ, and then the dogmas of Trinity and Christology and so on that is opposed to a modernist understanding that all of that's up for grabs all of it because it's all historically conditioned all of it is subjectivist and now therefore we need to engage in these theologies of experience where instead of beginning with christ and scripture and revelation we begin with cultural pluralism and subjectivity and my identity and so you end up with queer theology and feminist theology and you know, indigenous theology, and what you then is reconstruct Christianity in the image of those experiences. And, and there's no such thing as objective truth beyond the projections of the individual. And that's an utterly modernist. Carl Truman, in his book on the therapeutic self, the imperial self, this is the truth that he was getting Great book, by the way, if you're viewers, you're probably very familiar with it. Carl, well, Truman. Carl
1: Truman, of course, is not a is not a a stranger to Reformed theology.
2: So exactly, <laughs> you know, and so that's my point. I have more in common with Carl and his vision of Christianity vis-a-vis the prophetic needs of our time than I do with most people in the Catholic Theological Guild.
1: Now, now, Father Eric. Even though I haven't invited him on the screen, he is making comments <laughs> in here, and so I, uh, I certainly won't ban him from the comments. Uh, um, somebody should let Larry, Larry, know we don't like the term "objective" around here. Now, <laughs> explain now, that and, Paul. Explain that Paul. Well, and that's that's because a lot of what's sort of, I mean, whenever Kale talks about the corner or this little corner, that's sort of become shorthand for this strange little movement that we have. That sort of got kicked off by Jordan Peterson. Uh, the work of Jonathan Peugeot, an, Ar- an orthodox icon carver, John Verveki, a non-theist, cognitive science, who was a colleague of Jordan's at... I mean, a lot of our conversations here have been sort of a um, a, a, a desire to get beyond um, sort of the modernist, fundamentalist fight, which, of course, was deep in many, yeah. many Protestant theological... I mean, the Christian Reformed Church... We're currently having a battle over same-sex marriage right now, and the conservatives have pretty decisively won. and the the progressives who have had the who have been the elites in the denomination for seventy years, are now in a place that they have no idea what to do with because they have been building all of these institutions, owning all of these institutions, and they're now realizing that the conservatives are rather are 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 ready to enforce subscription on matters like traditional sexuality, and they are going to find themselves locked out of all of the institutions they have been carefully cultivating for 70 years. I mean, that's what's happening in the yeah. Christian form church now. Now, one way to look at that, and most of the Christian form progressive elites who are now about your age and my age, um, you know, a lot of the older crew, they they see this battle, they tend to see this battle through the lens of the modernist-fundamentalist fight, and they are sort of on the modernist side and they bl- they point fingers to all of the conservatives that they are fundamentalists, and there certainly is that valence going on in the christian reformed church. What has been happening in this little corner of the internet has been not so much a framing. Um, it, it, it's it sort of followed the phenomenology all the way through into a neo-sacramentalism that basically yes. says that um on the other on the other side of the modernist fundamentalist fight there is the recognition that a lot of this traditionalism there was a phenomenology baked into um into the ancient world that was essential for human habitation and human thriving and that the and obviously this causes a big Tremors within Protestantism, which of course was right there at this, this great break, which gave birth to the Enlightenment and modernism and all of that. I mean, Protestantism and modernism in some ways can be seen as quite synonymous, but now we have this movement where, for example, when I came to Sacramento, I I came to pastor the, the oldest of our Sacramento churches in our denomination because Sacramento was a growing city. We started planting We started planting new churches, and when we started planting churches in the 90s, we were using sort of Bill Hybels, big box seeker methodology, and one of the interesting things is that all of these churches that we planted over the last 20 years have gone from sort of a big stage, big sound, sort of traditional Protestant revival conversionist ethos into liturgical calendars, <laughs> more sacraments. I mean, that's kind of been the split that's happening. And so one of the things that, and so it's it's funny because in the Christian Reformed Church, now we're getting closer to what the title of this is, many who had been sort of following the modernist fundamentalists, but tracking with the modernists basically said, of course the turn to embrace same-sex marriage um, and this this new understanding of human sexuality, as, as you sort of frame, from an experiential, the other side that is merging is also sort of has a focus on the phenomenological the phenomenology and the experiential, but in a very different way that has in some ways become a new form of conservatism. So, I mean, that's yes. sort of where this. This very strange little thing that's been growing over well, here has that's been tracking. Very,
2: yeah, it's very interesting because it tracks very, you know, as soon as the word objective came out of my mouth, of course, little <laughs> alarm bells went off because th- that does, you know, conjure up an image of a kind of false Archimedean objectivity that floats above time and history. It's But it is a convenient shorthand with regard to emphases uh and a lot depends on how you conceive of objectivity of course now a lot of this mirrors the current debates in the catholic church between radical modernist progressives and radical traditionalists all right who are kind of our fundamentalists who have these sets of fundamentals that we all have to adhere to in this very rigorous way or else you're not really a catholic and they'll go all the way back to the council of constance and aquinas and yeah see they said xyz here and so that's what we still have to think okay so we have that debate too. Now the theological school out of which I move is the same theological that Pope John Paul, Pope Benedict, and it was called Raison Soul Small French term in the middle of the 20th century. Return to the sources. Let's get back to Scripture, the Church Fathers, Aquinas, and others. Let's see the entirety of the tradition in a bigger picture. And part of that bigger picture was take and 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 that's really what motivated the second vatican council and so forth what what, part of that big picture is precisely rooting objectivity and subjectivity and vice versa grounded in history and vice versa which requires a turn and we saw this in pope john paul a return a a turn towards certain phenomenological methods of philosophical discourse we're not leaving sort of tomistic metaphysics behind but we are now going to incorporate notions of experience that get phenomenologically analyzed, both theologically from within the lens of faith and philosophically, in order to construct in a sense orthodoxy from below, yeah. which is possible. So right. you, you nailed right. it on the head. Right. you know I think the the allure of a Jordan Peterson and some others that I could name is that this is pres- they're coming at this in a sense from, a discipline not even related to theology, in this case, right. psychology, okay? And just starting with a fundamental analysis of how people are experiencing the world themselves, they're constructing, in a sense, a fairly or- Christian orthodox worldview out of that. And so we do need to see these two things coming together. Uh, the, the guy I did my doctoral dissertation on, Hans Urs von Balthasar, was a Swiss Catholic the- theologian, very uh, familiar with Karl Barth, the Protestant Reformed theologian. Uh, and, and Balthasar's whole point was that it's very, what you said, it's very sacramental, that Christ presents us with a gestalt, a form, an esthetic. And that form has very much an objectivity like art has an objectivity that then provokes From within us a certain subjective response uh that then has to be taken into consideration but anyway i don't want to go into big academic dissertation here but no but
0: but one of the things this is great so like one of the things that 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 people talk about here is you know this sort of we're seeing you know visions of things that emanate from 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 a top and things that emerge from on uh, from from underneath and right there's this sort of interesting meeting ground between these two things and so i'm fascinated about what you're talking about with with you know von balthasar and then you're seeing what what peterson just starting with the phenomena you know what are the the things themselves right back to the things right i mean i think that's that's really important here um because the 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 sort of the the leftish modernists and the rightish modernists seem to ignore all of that uh, the the upper and the lower registers right and I know this is a word that's going to trigger you Paul, but both of them tend to be very literal and, and I'm using that that, oh, yeah. that, that magic word uh, on purpose because we don't like to say literal here we like to say real or actual whatever but but I physical. mean it right I think for physical <laughs> right that the that the, the modern the leftish and the rightish modernists all play on the on on the level of the letter. And it and, and it hinges really on that. And what I don't understand, and maybe, um, Larry, you might have to say something. to Say, why didn't the the left? Uh, I know why the the, the conservatives didn't get um, blown away by this, but why didn't the left side of that equation get destroyed by Derrida and and the rest of the um, uh, post
2: structuralists? You know, it's well, it's interesting easy. to me. It's easy. Sex. Sex okay okay mm-hmm. uh, sex because uh the one thing that postmoderns are are not really that postmodern about is is that they buy into uh the, the modern world's view of of sex and the right. rights to sex and so on right. that's my view anyway that's interesting uh, okay. yeah, that's cool. that, that they don't take their deconstruction far enough but anyway <laughs> I, I i like your idea though because ironically i think both protestant like fundamentalists and catholic radical traditionalists have a relatively modernist understanding of truth absolutely okay that if they buy into this enlightenment concept of a fact values distinction yes. of objective subjective yes. radi- so if something is objectively true then subjectivity doesn't count and if something is subjectively constructed then obviously it has no objective yeah. reality right. beyond the mind yeah. and so you end up with either Liberal liberals are conservative liberals. Yeah. And so what breaks down in postmodernism is that entire fact values distinction is attacked. And, you know, love becomes veiled lust. Justice becomes veiled uh, revenge. Truth mm-hmm. becomes veiled power and so on. Mm-hmm. And you get all of these various deconstructions, which is why we are now left with nothing than the flotsam and jetsam of a balkanized universe of various... Atomized identities, all yeah. fighting in the public square for the for for their you know for their pound of flesh. Now, I do think though that w- to play in that sandbox is both dangerous but almost somewhat necessary for mm. modern day evangelists. Mm. Okay, so what we have to show. See, part of the problem with theologies of experience is precisely that some experiences are more privileged than others. It seems. <laughs> okay. So there's a there's already we have to do a hermeneutic of the process of selectivity with regard to yeah. whatever filters are being used to say well these are the privileged experiences and these ones are not. And so take the take the issue of same sex blessings. The presumption among many of the Catholic supporters of this is that well that's clearly the compassionate thing to do because you know otherwise it's a very it's going against the the gay experience of their own sexuality, and they're here. We can learn from them about their, we need to respect that, except that ignores the fact that there are millions of Catholic homosexuals, or maybe tens of thousands, I don't know the exact numbers, who actually don't want to uh, engage in the LGBTQ subculture, who do view Uh, homosexual sex relations as spiritually toxic, as sinful, as something to be avoided. And many of them do try to live Christianly chaste lives, only now to be thrown under the bus by a church that says, you know what, your experience doesn't count. Because now they use the language of of the postmoderns, you've simply imbibed the ideology of your oppressors, you are a self-loathing homosexual because you Mm -hmm. have taken in heteronormativity, hook, line, and sinker, and you need re-education, brother. You need to come out of your Plato's cave and see the light.
0: And and to to be who you really are, right? And And be who
2: you are, and we're here to help you be who you are. So then all of a sudden, then you've got the specter of trying to figure out, okay, whose experience are we talking about here? And what is experience after all? And and what counts as a movement of the Holy Spirit within that experience? Uh, These are all questions that go largely unanswered. Uh, And what happens simply is that the normativity of secular values, whatever the, the, the mood of the social contract is at the current moment, that becomes the determinative filter as to what experiences count and which ones don't. And that's precisely what we're seeing right now in the Catholic Church with this huge debate over same sex blessings.
1: Now let's, uh, before we get into um, the the content itself, This is these are three notes from the, the guy I wanted to have on, another Christian form minister, friend of mine. Um, and, and he brings up point number one. He says, to me, this feels like PR cover. The Roman Catholic, uh, this is another Christian form minister who wrote this. Sure, the Roman Catholic okay. uh, refuses to deal with misbehaving priests and higher up who looked the other uh-huh. way or perpetuated the crimes themselves. But now all the PR is about, some inclusive future that will never happen edward bernays would be proud um the you know one of the things that i noted too was if a if a liberal episcopalian came out with oh we're going to do same sex blessings uh, they would be decried a bigot because well what what why not full but so so part of what yeah. and and also when an, for for many people so as a local church pastor someone comes up to me and says oh what kind of a church are you and you know back in the <laughs> yeah, day yeah. when i was fresh into america i'd use words like protestant only of course to see hi okay they they don't know that word um because you know we started at christian reformed and 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 it was sort of all over the place. So for many people, people will call me father. I'll say I'm a minister. I'm not a priest. <laughs> and of course, that distinction is is nowhere nowhere seen. So let's let's first talk about blessing because one of the things that I see immediately is that oh, for in the in a Roman Catholic context, I mean, there, there's never been a. I received no training from my theological education on blessing. What what in the Christian Reformed Church would be, well, we're going to say a blessing for a meal. Blessing is basically a prayer. And, of course, it's not looked at, but that's, of course, couched in within the tradition. Protestants have sort of their assumed understanding of prayer. But right away when I got this, I thought, let's, you know— Talking to my Protestant friends, before you rush in, basically, with your very low resolution, I'm for it or again it, based on, you know, my polarity in the culture war, you have to understand that in a sacramental universe, something, something coming down from the hierarchy, prescribing in great detail what a blessing is and who can be blessed and what those blessings mean, that is a whole other valence in a deeply sacramental tradition. So maybe you guys can flesh that out a bit because that's not a, I mean, obviously there's sort of the payload in a culture war that this thing (laughs) delivered to American papers. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, I want to at least have not be totally clueless about what on earth are we talking about?
0: And, and, and Larry, you can hit this, but and also what, what, what would be the difference between like say kale Zeldin offering a blessing versus what does it mean in, in our world when a priest or a bishop or a cardinal or a pope offers a blessing
2: oh there's so many interesting things all packed in there uh, uh, one has to ask since priests have always been allowed to bless sinners they do it in the confessional all the time uh or just anybody who hey, vada can you bless yeah. an old altar boy you know just run up in the street you know uh yeah the, the priests have always been able to bless sinful individuals who approached them and said help me, Father, I'm a sinner, and just put God's blessing on me so I can do better. I mean, that's got gospel warrant, right? When, you know, Lord, (laughs) I am not worthy that you even under under my roof, but only say the word, and so on, that kind of thing. But So this document seems to be going beyond that. And it seems to be going out of its way to say, okay, now we're going to add a new kind of blessing. All right? And the, the viewers need to know this, all right? That there's a, new, there's a new blessing in town that the doctrine for the doctrine of faith has suddenly discovered. And this new blessing is called a blessing of mercy. It's not, it's not a blessing of repentance where you're actually asking people before you bless them, express repentance for your sins. And I will gladly pray over you for conversion and the grace of God to help you overcome your sins. No, this is you're in your sin and God loves you as you are. And I'm going to bless you anyway, because God loves you as you are. And I'm not going to call you out of your repentance because that would be judgmental. Notice the document says no moral interrogation before the blessing is given. No, it even uses the word interrogation. You may not morally interrogate the person you're about to bless. The presumption is we're all sinners. This is a sinner presenting themselves to you and no questions can be asked. So this is kind of a blessing of mercy instead of an old-fashioned... Now, the difference between just an average person uh blessing, you know, a lay person and a priest is that, of course, in the Catholic Church, and you hit it, uh, Paul, you know, the in the Catholic Church, the priest himself is a sacrament, holy orders, in persona Christi, who stands in the person of Christ to confect the sacraments, to perform the Eucharist. Uh, and therefore, the document makes a distinction between, you know, liturgical blessings and non-liturgical blessings, sacramental blessings and non-sacramental blessings. So now we've got this new thing called a non-liturgical, non-sacramental blessing of pure mercy. And and yet it flies in the face of the fact the reason why people want a priest to bless them and not a lay person is precisely because they sense the sacramental presence of the priest. A Catholic wants a priest to bless them because a Catholic perceives the full sacramental and liturgical weight of the church behind every single priestly blessing, even if that priest is simply blessing your dog or your rosary or your house. Okay, that's why you have them come over and not your next door neighbor Susie. Okay? That's why. And so it, it, it flies in the face of common sense to say, oh, we're going to have them bless same-sex couples, but they're not really liturgical blessings and they're not really blessing the union. They're just blessing these couples. Well what the heck is that?
1: Well, my, my question immediately was, are they blessing the relationship? because it's one thing to bless, you know, Two men went yes. up to the temple to pray, you know, um, right. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's one thing to bless a person. And and because, of course, in in a Protestant church downstream of Luther, you have the priesthood of all believers. That sort of, I mean, obviously, these things are in play in terms of the sacramental thing. But the thing that immediately appeared to me was blessing a relationship when, in fact, in at least in terms of the debate going on in the Christian Reformed Church, you know, it's, it's, it's the, re, you know, there, there are issues with the people, but like you said, there are always issues with everyone in the Christian for You know, we have the, we have total depravity. I, I can't bump into a human being and not meet a sinner who with mixed motives and, right. and mixed outcomes, all of that, but you're blessing a, and and that of course, in, in many ways, the Christian world church is the fight. You're blessing a, a type of relationship and, and to me, in you know, part of what happens in a marriage ceremony is you are asking God's blessing, certainly on the people, but yeah. the focus is on the relationship. And it seemed to me that 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 I didn't understand in that because obviously there's also this other valence of the
2: sacrality
1: yeah. of things that Protestants and Catholics have tension right. on as well.
2: Yeah, yeah right. you know, there's there's definitely here it's there's a contradiction within the document, and it's a contradiction caused by the fact that it's trying to be deceptive, and I'm just gonna say it. The document really wants to green light the blessing of same-sex unions. I think that's very clear. It wouldn't have come out as a declaration unless it had something, some value-added thing that it was after, that it had some goal that it really wanted to achieve. Uh, All those people out there saying, oh, this is a big nothing burger. This is just saying that it can bless sinners, and we've always done that. Well, if that's all it's saying, it's a big nothing burger, then why issue the document at all? And internally, the document says, well, we're not Oh, this is not a marriage, and we're not blessing the union. We're blessing. In, in no
0: way should this be confused with the, That's the, right. the blessing. And yet our,
2: yeah. the two people are allowed to present themselves as a couple to be blessed. And it is said that what is being blessed are the positive elements in their relationship, Of not their the relationship, right? Yeah, not the sinful bits of their relationship. We're blessing mm-hmm. like the mutuality and nurturing and loving care while one is sick and those sorts of things, that is what we're blessing here. Okay, so then you are blessing the relationship. So now we're, we, we've we already split hairs between these different kinds of blessings, split hairs that nobody's going to pay attention to. Now we're splitting hairs about what part of the relationship is getting blessed and what part is not. That's why this same, this same curial office, the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith, in 2021 issued a document that said, Under Pope Francis, it said, in no way, in no way can we bless these things, in no way, because you cannot differentiate between the good parts of the union and and the sinful parts. It will all be taken as a whole. And that's precisely what this document now repudiates. It says, oh, yeah, yeah, we can bless the good parts of the relationship well. And and yet everybody knows, and they had to know in Rome, how this was going to get spun in the press and by people like the, the Catholic, uh, act, gay activist. Not, he's not gay, but uh, at least in theory, Father James Martin. Okay, he, he hasn't stated his sexuality, but he's a big LGBTQ advocate. As soon as this document hit the fan, he called the New York Times, established an op, a, a, a photo op moment, called two of his gay friends who are married, blessed them very publicly, and so on. And this is how it's being spun. And the Vatican had to know. This is how it's going to be spun. So this is a long-winded way, and I'm dominating the conversation of saying yes to your observation that it does seem that they are greenlighting the blessing of a relationship here. But I don't think there's any way around that. That's what they're doing.
1: See, for me, this is as a Protestant. I look at this, I read it in the paper, I see it immediately in a culture war veil, and so I say, okay, I understand the culture war payload of this, but I, I want to, I also want to, I also want to understand that I don't understand a lot about this ancient massive institution that clearly, even if the tiny little Christian reformed church can have its own little politics and within a, you know, a a quarter of a million denomination you that I've been in intergenerationally, you know, the names and the players, et cetera, et cetera. I see this thing on the news and it's like, What, what, what am I, what what sense can I make of this? I want to pull up another, I want to pull up another quote from my, um, from my friend here. Um, Let's see. He, he writes, um, his third point, um, it's also selfishly disastrous for conservative Protestants. We enjoy the shadow of the Roman Catholic Church. We benefited from the clear teaching of John Paul II and Benedict. A schism in the Roman Church over this will make schisms in Protestant churches even more likely, which I thought was a very, which I thought was a very interesting, um, very interesting observation, because, you know, as as sort of we started the conversation. One of the two of the books that Kale turned me on to, so this is why I've loved um all of the new relationships that I've been able to develop in this strange cyberspace is you know getting to know Kale. And Kale will often send me book recommendations. He sent, I think it was from you, Kale. I got this book recommendation on Vatican I with ultramontanism. And I'm reading this 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 history of the Catholic Church, and it's like, wow, of course, you know, never taught learned any of this in seminary. You can see <laughs> this fight with I mean, the yeah. Protestants have had this modernism fight going on for a long time. Of course, the Catholic Church has had it too, and, and in many ways kind of older because you were dealing with it, obviously, for for a very long time. And so, and then Vatican II, same author, it was John O'Malley? Wrote O'Malley, yeah, you know the O'Malley
0: yeah. books, uh, uh, Larry.
1: And, and for me, these yeah. were just these were just windows into all kinds of history, you know, you as a Protestant, you'd hear things about Vatican II and well and, and super low resolution. Vatican two, well, the Catholic Church just seemed to get a little nicer. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. great. That's great. I think that's why well, most Catholic things too. Wasn't that council yeah, about right. saying we don't have to do anything exactly anymore? Right, right. I and mean, that, that became the that it got became rid of all the... those rules that we used to have. Right, right, right.
0: <laughs> that's you the... know, so I, ahead, I, I, I'm 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 struck here though, just about uh, you know, the, 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 the idea of a blessing, right? I mean, I think that, that, you know, words are funny things, right? Or as Paul likes to say, words can be, we can use fudgy words, right? And, and, you know, it's one thing if, uh, you know, if I go, um, you know, home, and I ask, you know, I'm um, to, hey, dad, you know, I'm, uh, I'd like to take, you know, this, I'd like to take, you know, your, your daughter to the homecoming dance, right? And the dad says, you know, nods and assent, and you know, so like, I got, I got her father's blessing, right, to take her, his daughter out for a, for a, for a date, right? Um, And, and so I think we all understand that kind of blessing, right? You know, basically, it's like sort of my favor, or, you know, my nod of assent, right? But I, I think that, where 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 you can sort of see the flattening of the word blessing into just that meaning, right? Is it's been sort of cycled through and speed run through um all the various modernisms and all the various isms. But if, I think if we look at what Catholics have understood as blessing, you know, it's it is explicitly supernatural, right? That 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 you know, and and, and maybe some people would accuse it of being like magic or 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 whatnot, but that the, the reason why. Me, you know, blessing the table versus Father, you know, Stan blessing, you know, the 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 thing is that that in in Catholic sacramental theology that the priest has access to confer blessing in in, in a very in a in a in a real way that I don't have as a non ordained person, right? And yeah. and and right, Larry, please check yeah. me if yeah. So so again, it's like it's really difficult to talk about this un- un- unless you're willing to say, you know, that there is, you know, it's sort of anti, um, uh, you know, the whole Charles Taylor thing, uh, Paul, right? You know, that, that, that it is a throwback to a world that was not buffered, but hugely porous. And, and and almost infinitely porous in its import so that like a thing yeah. can even uh, be blessed, right? That my, you know, whatever, my, 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 my tools, my whatever can be blessed, right? Water, so, oil. Right, right. So all these things, right? So that matter then become, takes on a sort of a, a, a special valence, right? So my question, you know, to when I saw the photo op with Father James Martin and doing his thing, right, is that it, they must not believe that human beings are icons of the supernatural right they they simply must not understand my body as carrying carrying supernatural meaning right that 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 the only difference between you know like my marriage to my wife versus you know uh, Tim's marriage to Jim's marriage right uh to you know is that you know it is no difference it's effectively not different right that 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 my this sexed body you know that you see before you um is is literally just not different than than another one right so so therefore if there is no if it's just stuff right if it's just meat then who am i to judge right i mean as the famous line goes right and so therefore why can't you bless tim and jim just like you would you know that you would yeah. bless jack and Jill, right because because you can only do so if you believe that bodies
2: are insignificant, and therefore sex is instrumentalized. Right. It's just part A and part B, and certain. It's merely affective. It's affective. Yeah. Therefore, at best. what's the big deal here? Right. Uh And yet, I often say to people, you know, look, what if a what if <laughs> you talk about irregular unions? Yeah. What if a, a brother and a sister who were in an incestuous relationship right. and lived together, uh, and the priest knew about this? <laughs> And they presented themselves to the priest and said, hey, Father, we would like you uh, to to bless us. And the priest would then rightly should morally interrogate them. And I don't know of anybody that would say that he shouldn't and say, what exactly are you asking me to bless here? (laughs) I will bless both of you as individuals or I will bless the two of you together if you promise to stop having sex with each other. (laughs) Right. And to repent of your incestuous, sinful relationship. And if they said, sure, we're sorry for that, we want you to bless us, then fine. But if they come forward and said, We want you to bless our relationship, and he doesn't ask any questions, and it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in Catholic teaching, that would be a sacrilege, almost a blasphemy, because you're you're invoking the blessing of God upon something which is deeply and profoundly sinful and unholy. Uh and, and that's what's kind of bizarre that now I'm b- before I get all kinds of hate mail, I'm not equating, you know, gay sex with incestuous relationships. I'm using a deliberately outrageous example of a sexual union that we would all agree is sinful. Everybody would agree is sinful from a Christian point of view, and say none of us would say that a priest should bless that union. No way. So there is an implied approval here. Larry, I, I don't know what the stopping mechanism is for the logic of that. Yeah, I honestly, I, don't well, I, you exactly. I, what is be next? Jur-
0: I'll be the jerk here. I just, I don't, I don't know what, why. Why are we drawing this arbitrary? Um, line in the sand for a brother and a sister um because what does that matter
2: Because love after the all
0: heart, the heart right I mean so I mean it's interesting you know Paul I, I'm not sure if you picked up on the this 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 sort of new patois of irregular relationships I and mean, is that something that's jumped off the page for you
1: yeah well it did um and yeah and of course but your point kale is is really important and thinking along the lines of so I, I was, I was finishing up my Sunday school class last week and we were in Romans 14 and 15. You have the weak and the strong. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I was thinking, and, and Paul is talking about, you know, some people have special days of the week. Some people um, will eat only vegetables. Some people meet, you know, you've got, you've got the book of Daniel with some valence mm-hmm. over that. And you've got Roman, you know, you've got all of these layers going on, but, and so then I, I asked to the class, I said, but. You know, also you have 1 Corinthians 8 and you have this talk about meat sacrifice to idols. But the one thing that Paul doesn't seem to change with respect to Jewish, um, to his inherited Jewish moral posture in the context of the Roman Empire is traditional Jewish sexuality, which was very much out of step with sexuality in the rest of the world. That sexual behavior in Christianity continues to have a very special specific valence to it that Protestants and Catholics we might debate about food and fasting and some of these things but but sexuality seems to have a very special place in the moral universe in christianity and 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 when you come post enlightenment to try to say well we're going to have what we imagine to be a filter of rationality through which we will decide what is contextual and what, um, you know, yeah. therefore, what is what is adiaphora from what is essential. I mean, sexuality has always sort of been the nub here, and 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 so, and and that, in fact, in part of the argument I put forward to the Christian Reformed Church is that, in fact instead of instead of thinking about let's say a list of rules because rules based approaches tend to get difficult i think and I, I think you want you'd rather you'd be better off to look at ideals and i think actually that is one way in which a lot of the sacramental traditions better preserved because what is what is the ideal for human sexuality because if you if you bring things if you deal in an economy of ideals you can deal with that which falls short of the ideal but you measure the institutional response and and orient the ins- institutional response with respect to the ideal rather than necessarily the rules because human reality is messy human hearts are messy people's lives get messy and and in this context of course like you said i think you said it beautifully Every every priest in a confessional is blessing sinners. That's the whole point mm-hmm. of a blessing. That the blessing yeah. is to yeah. is to bring someone towards the ideal, and that again, I think part of how that's the Catholics right. have helped Protestants in this conversation. It's a
2: repentant sinner. That's right. That Your repentance, but I, I I would balk at one thing. Okay, I, I I perfectly agree with what you're driving at here with regard to we're all on this graduated scale on the path of sanctification, and we're all sinners. Uh, but I'm not comfortable with the language of of, of ideals, uh, mm-hmm. because that's an easy way to ignore the fact that what we're talking about here are commandments. Mm-hmm. These are non-negotiables. And so, yes, we have to be compassionate and forgiving of everyone who violates a, com- a commandment. And we have to be, en- I mean, because I have violated commandments. You have. We all have and we all have to be endlessly forgiving of that but they're not ideals they're not asymptotic goals that none of us can reach i can live a life where i don't commit adultery that's true, that's true. That's true. i can live a life where i don't steal lie a lie or murder anyone i can live a life where i honor god and don't dishonor my mother and father that's within our reach. That is possible. And to speak of them as ideals, I think, is to make them sound like these ethereal things that none of us can. This is what this Vatican has done right, over and say, over yeah, and yeah. over again, whether it's on, on so many Catholic moral, theological issues, and sexuality, is to treat them as ideals, none and of therefore, us. Those, and therefore, and therefore, unreachable, and therefore right, right. And and therefore mm-hmm. unreachable. And therefore, we need to have this endless rolling compassion that is essentially disavowing the fact that these are commandments that the church expects you to live up to. Of course, now there's a fine line here between judgmentalism and harshness and pharisaism and self-righteousness and then mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. There's a tension there, absolutely. But you don't resolve that tension by simply saying, well, they're not commandments anymore. They're just ideals. Well, yeah, that gets rid of the tension all right. (laughs) That really gets rid of the tension, doesn't it? And uh, I would also have one, one thing. I don't know how much time we have here, and I don't want to dominate. I, this, I, I but... usually go
1: two hours, so um, at some point we'll probably oh, okay. get well, I would, so I don't know. At the,
2: at the risk of changing the topic, there was a Spanish bishop that came out today. I can't remember his name. It was reported in a Catholic news agency, and and they interviewed him about this new document. And he said, okay, I have issues with it and so on, but it is from the Holy Father. But what he said was very interesting, and some of you viewers may not know why this is interesting, but he said, I wish, however, on a matter of such great pastoral importance that affects the entire worldwide church on a matter of great sensitivity and contentiousness that the Holy Father and the Vatican had consulted the bishops of the world on this topic first. But they didn't and they just and, and he used the word synodal that the pope had been more synodal in his approach because pope francis for the past two years has been pushing a, a more synodal and less Roman centralized centralized church. You should it, flesh that out a little bit, um, because people. Yeah, don't well, even know okay. It. Going back to this idea that the Pope is some sort of monarch and potentate, you know, every, every that every Protestant stereotype ever used against Catholics and Protestant that the Pope is just sort of oracle on the Tiber, gets an idea every day, and this is now revelation. Yeah. Is sort of coming true here in some ways in this papacy. Whereas <laughs> right. the idea has never been—go back to Cardinal Newman and others—the idea has never been that the Pope is just this free-floating oracle that hovers above Scripture and tradition and everything and can just make stuff. I use stronger language, but make stuff up as he goes along. And that therefore now that's the new teaching of the Church. He's he's not supposed to do that. Okay, and so Pope Francis himself has been saying we need less and less and less focus on the Pope. There's too much cult of personality around the Pope. Too many decisions in the church being made by the Pope. Let's decentralize. Let's have a synodal church, a localist church, where local bishops and local episcopal synods have greater voice, greater power. So we just had this synod on synodality in October in Rome. I covered it for various publications. And the whole thing was about, we need to be a listening church. We need to be a church that goes out to the peripheries. We need to be a church that listens to experience. Pope used the term perhesia, which means Mm. endless openness. Nobody can be judged in the dialogue. Everybody can say whatever they want to say. And that's all in the interest of making sure that we now have this church where decisions are made on a more grassroots level and so on. And then to have that entire, and right after this synod, two months after that synod, the Pope comes out with this document without consulting anyone. By the way, this issue of same-sex blessings was supposed to have been discussed at the synod on Synodelli in October, and it was discussed a little bit, but the final concluding document didn't even mention it, didn't even bring it up, because the African bishops didn't want it brought up. Many Italian and American bishops did not want it brought up. Okay, And so the people who forged the final document on the synod had to leave all the LGBTQ stuff out, which really angered the progressives. All right, So in other words, when the synod met and all these bishops from around the world and lay representatives met, they in a sense said, we don't want all this stuff. And two months after this, after all this emphasis on synodality and local decision making and consultation, the Pope just unilaterally, on his own authority, issues this pastoral directive that affects everyone around the world without consultation. That is the and, height. I'm, I'm, it's, and, it's hypocritical in the extreme. Yeah, it's
0: very hypocritical. And, and, and at the you know the tag, you know, right before the final blessing of the document, ironically, you know, these are the words that we're left with, Paul. Thus, beyond the guidance provided above, no further response should be expected about possible ways to regulate details or practicalities regarding blessings of this type. Yeah yeah no yeah. exactly no, no yeah. further clarification thank you 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 did the right you did the right uh, scared jump you know it's like what like what is that i mean in in the in the the you know the hypocrisy i think that that larry fairly says but the the height of irony at the very least you know for for yeah. this this pontificate to sort of hang its entire sort of reputation on a a on a new way of being church right now you might catch some very evangelical words, right, Right, Paul? Yeah, the the sort of the the neologisms, right? But of a new way of being church, a new synodal way, and to have that be um, the sort of the tag on this document, which everybody knows, which is literally not even 48 hours later, (laughs) We're seeing all of the fallout all over the place in an unprecedented fashion. I mean, you have entire, you know, you know, every, you know, the, the 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 all of the bishops' conferences of of the entire continent of Africa are like, yeah, no, you know, you have, yeah. you know, and it's not just the Africans so we're not, you know, but it, all over the place. And this is an unprecedented. government the, Ukra- the Ukrainian Catholics said no. That's right. You know, this is an unprecedented governing crisis in the church. It's really hard to understate how bonkers this is because that, you know, all of the practical questions arise. Like what do you do? So, so, so your interlocutor, Paul, the point one was something about PR. You know, if you want to flash that back up on the screen, you know, I think, I think he's right, you know, that, that there's some sort of PR problem going on and cover because, how do you deal with misbehaving priests? And actually, actually, what does it actually mean to be a misbehaving priest in this context? So so g- I'll give you two quick examples, right? Let's say that I'm a, a, a sympathetic priest in a diocese that is not terribly sympathetic to this sort of thing. So, you know, a gay couple comes to me and they ask for blessing and I want to give it. Am I in trouble because my bishop says we're not playing this game in this? Or flip it around, I, I'm in a more you know, uh, you know, open type, type, type church, uh, uh diocese. And, you know, but uh, it very clearly states in this document that I'm not the, the blessed same sex, um, relationships. And so I refuse to do it. Now, am I in some kind of hot water? And then legally speaking, where does this put Catholic schools? Where does this put the chanceries? Where does this put all kinds of things are, 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 are Maybe the unintended consequences of a document that is, you know, official. It's official. I mean, I'm not arguing with it's. It's sort of power, I guess. I don't know. But that that the, the Spanish bishop that that Larry invokes here says, you know, God, you could have like, you know, if you want us, you know, what is the? There's a famous line from Casper Weinberger. You know, it's something along the lines of, look, if you want me to be part of the landing, please make sure that I'm part of the takeoff. And, boy, this really seems like an, an instance in which no one was really consulted beyond a very small coterie of, of, of um, consultants, and, boy, it's, it's blowing up.
2: The word that's come out too is that very few people from within Cardinal Fernandez's own office in Rome knew that this document was coming. It seems to have been written almost exclusively by Cardinal Fernandez, who just sort of- He's the head of the DDF, Paul, which is basically, he's the head of
0: the theological doctrinal office of
2: the papacy. Yeah, and to understand this in a nutshell, to understand what's really going on here, okay? So the whole history of, of, of the papacy over the past, say 200 years, can be boiled down to a simple sort of metaphor here, that the papacy has been in a struggle against the centrifugal forces of the world that are threatening to tear the church apart. So the Pope has always viewed himself for the past 200 years as a centripetal force, bringing the church together, holding the church together. So then you see the rise of the modernist movement from within the church and you see that centripetal force of the papacy getting even stronger. Then after the Second Vatican Council and the liberal progressive modernists really take control of seminaries and and Catholic universities and all chancery offices, then you see really like under John Paul and Benedict, you see a a very strong Catholic emphasis among conservatives like Cale and me on the papacy, on Rome. We need that strong Roman... So when... Pope Francis comes along and he calls this this synod on synodality to, in a sense, make the church less centripetal and, and more centrifugal, the worry begins to creep in that maybe this this synod really isn't about, in a sense, changing the, the authority lines of the church so much as it is a stalking horse for something else. That's right. That's we're right. suspicious right. that it's a stalking horse for something else. And we're suspicious that that stalking horse or is the sexual revolution, gay marriage, all that kind of stuff, that that's what they were really after. And many of the synod participants before they even got there were very open about the fact that's what we want the synod to do. We want gay marriage. We want women priests. We want abortion and contraception. We want all that stuff. And they didn't get it. So now it seems like those of us who saw the synod as a stalking horse were right. Because they didn't get what they wanted, so now the Vatican just says, "Well, we're going to do it anyway. Right. <laughs> we're going, right. and but but, but we're going to do it in this way that makes it seem like we're not really doing it." They knew darn well how this thing was going to land. They knew exactly how the New York Times was going to spin it, and and they did it anyway. And then they say, "And we're not going to talk about it anymore because they want it to fall out this way." You know, so.
1: It's just, it's, it's, you know, so during my
2: own synod in the Christian
1: Reformed church, I had all kinds of people. I was kind of giving little reports on it and people for, you know, Roman Catholic, people are like, I'm fascinated by what's going on in your synod. And I'm thinking, why? Why? But now I'm watching this and I'm just fascinated by yeah. what's going on with, with, in because, you know, there's, yeah. there's points of contact, obviously, and, and obviously also in a Protestant denomination like the Christian form church, where the synod is sort of the top thing. And so when yeah. the synod makes a decision, the, those who are in the, I would call it, I, I would always call it the, the, um the, 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 the sideboard, which was the synodical board. They, I mean, it, there's a funny, but there's a funny thing happening, at least in the Christian form church, there's a funny thing happening because a lot of the, the young conservatives have no, aspirations for taking over the institution now i don't know how this plays out i mean father father eric again i i, I won't father eric if you're coming in here with comments um you know he's, he's that's you're on you for this i'm not putting you in a corner but, i say
2: amen to that father eric yes
1: but but one of the things that i've heard from roman catholics is that oh this is just the way the Catholic Church goes, you have a liberal pope, then you have a conservative pope. You just keep going, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock between them. Although there, of course, there was John Paul, and then there was Benedict, and then there was Francis. I mean, how, is it? Is it just sort of Catholic culture to kind of endure these wins and stick with it? Because, you know, I think, you know, it's funny because Kale and I met via Kale's friend who, uh, Steve, who you know has a sub stack and Steve over the you know he he got to a point of walking away saying
0: yeah I'm yeah. done
1: with it and and of course in as a as a minister one of the things that we've been dealing with in the West and in America has been people walking away from the church Protestant churches Catholic churches orthodox churches too my Orthodox friends um plenty of people walking away from those churches as well and and this kind of it, it's funny because you you you'll get losses on both sides. You'll get those who say, you know, the Catholic Church is irredeemable. There's, you know, that they they won't do the obvious thing, which is to understand that gay couples are couples too and should be afforded, you know, the language of marriage. And you've got people on the other side that say, look, that the one the one thing that they're supposed to do is guard the treasure of the church, and here, you know, they're yeah, yeah. And, and in a very incoherent way. So of course. It's so funny when you talked about sort of you know Methodist envy. I when I when I heard that I immediately thought I look at what's happening with the United Methodists and the last thing I have is envy because it just looks
2: horrible. It's a, it's a mess. Yeah. Well, that's what mess, I always too. want to
0: ask my, my 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 left of center you know progressive Catholic friends is like you know let's just let's just play a just play a quick you know mind experiment you know like play it out let's say that 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 pope francis pushes through all these reforms both named and unnamed and and he gets his way like everything's perfectly synodal we've got blessings of same-sex marriages we have blessings of communion and 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 re- yeah divorce and remarriage etc cetera, etc cetera. and we have a female priesthood and, and all those sort of things i mean what do they actually think is going to happen like do they what's so fascinating to me paul is someone who d- does as much as I can to get out of my bubble and and to interact with all my my other you know Christian friends et cetera et cetera like do they really think that it is going to work like will that this will this really like build out the church and and no. I, I I just baffled
2: that they would even. You know, what are they even thinking? We have a control in this experiment, and it comes from our Protestant brothers and sisters. It's called liberal Protestantism. Right. Uh, They already did that and it didn't work. I mean, look at the Germans. The Germans are engaged in their own, if you don't know, they're engaged in their own synodal process, the German thing. And they want, you know, they don't want just gay blessings. They want gay marriage. They want, you know, everything, all the progressive wish list. And so to go to Kale's question, do they think it's going to work? I mean, just look around Germany. As, as right. low as mass attendance is among Catholics in Germany, around 10% or something like that, the Lutherans are even worse, all right? And the Lutherans have already gone down the pathway of progressive accommodation to modern secular values and gay this and all the feminist that. They've already done that. It hasn't helped them one whit. In fact, it seems to have made them worse. And yet the German bishops keep saying we have to change in order to stay relevant right, with, exactly. with yeah. secular German culture. And you wonder, my goodness, how, how blind how blind must you be to think that this is, is the path that we need to go down? Now, I will say, too, with regard to Father Eric's comment about the next pope needs to be a canonist. I say, yeah. You know, tell everybody
0: what that means, though, Paul, uh, well, Larry. A it, canon, what meaning
2: canon law is the law that governs the internal life of the Catholic Church. Uh, governs all the various... In other words, Catholics believe that they have rights and that priests have rights and bishops have rights and duties and so forth. And this is all regulated by this thing we call canon law. It goes way back to the medieval world. And it's actually a wonderful thing uh, in many, many ways because it it does, in a sense, mean that the church has a certain forensic structure to it, so you just can't do whatever you want. Now, the fact is Pope Francis seems to act like an autocrat. And and like he can just do whatever he wants and make things up as he goes along. And this is precisely what has thrown the church into its current crisis. Um, I, I disagree with that that Catholics just have to get used to a conservative pope than a liberal pope. The fact is, Pope Francis is, it is, I mean, he's without parallel. I mean, yeah, Paul VI was maybe a little more liberal than John Paul that came after. But we've we've never had a pope that said, you know what, it might be just okay if the church turned a blind eye to sex, you know, or if we just decided that all those rules governing marriage and sexuality are just pshaw, we're not going to, you know, we're going to stop being, stop being rigid, stop Um, being rigid, rigid, Larry. We've never had a Pope like that. And that's precisely the kind of crisis that we've been tossed into the Pope who just seems to rule by fiat and not according to the, to the tradition and the scriptures and canon law. So my ideal next Pope would be an Italian who's essentially more the bishop of Rome than the pope of the universal church, who never writes a thing, yes. never travels to another country, right? never issues any diktats or admonitions. He simply governs the church in its day-to-day nuts and bolts operations as governed by canon law. A man who knows, therefore, one of, the, one of the things that's not spoken enough of with regard to Pope Francis is the manner in which he's flaunted canon law with regard to uh, the, um, in a sense, the prosecution of bishops accused of covering up sexual abuse. That's in right. The church. That's right. That's right. That Pope Francis seems to have played favorites in that regard. And he's lifted the statute of limitations put down by canon law on some cases and then not lifted it in others as in the case of father rupnik the the jesuit who was now famous in the news for being a sexual abuser uh and the pope refused to lift that until just recently when there was an outcry and so suddenly he lifted that oh i've just gotten word of this disturbing information i'm lifting this x the the statute of limitation so there seems to be this arbitrariness and i so i agree with father eric we need a we need a pope that's going to return The rule of law to the church and a respect for her traditions.
1: What you said about you know bishop of Rome is so interesting to me because again, part of so the third player in this drama lately has been orthodoxy. At least in this little corner, Um, a lot of people gone to orthodoxy. I mean, Rod Dreher, in many ways, yeah, someone who who many of us know um and and so then the this question of okay who who is the pope how does he function and then how and and then the tensions obviously as a protestant this synodical thing is very interesting to me in terms of how that's why i found those vatican 1 vatican 2 books so very interesting because you have this this real conversation on how the body of christ lives through time and continues to live. And one of the amazing things, obviously, of the Roman Catholic Church is that it is so global, it is so massive, it is so diverse. I mean, people—what <laughs> diversity is this? Well, the Roman Catholics have diversity and strength, but obviously, diversity always has to be in relationship with commonality. Otherwise, the diversity makes no sense either. Yeah. So, uh, so. Well, it, this is this is just fascinating for me. Where, so where I, I got to keep an eye on the time here too. Where, where, where does the church go from here? I mean, politically, this has to be just sort of a just sort of a a bomb that goes off among many Catholics who are again. I sort of ask, do you just sort of wait this out, hoping for the next pope? Because obviously, yeah. the pope also has power in terms of the pope is. Brought in by the
2: Cardinals, and who appoints the Cardinals? But the Pope, yeah, it's a bit incestuous, isn't it? But I would say this, uh, well, indisputably th- so, though.
0: I mean, oh yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I
2: don't think we want simply a restorationist Pope who's going to come in and say, a- a- a pox upon all of that nonsense that just came before me." We're going to roll the clock back and simply really put the hammer down and go back to good old old timey Catholic. You know, that's a romanticism and a conceit. Uh, yeah. that we can do without. There can't, it can't be a, a you know a draconian restorationist pope, but a Pope Francis part two would be a catastrophe of the highest order as yeah. well. But I do think the next pope, and the, the, the thing would be, oh well, then we need a centrist pope. No, we just need a pope, I think, who's going to continue on. I think the legacy of synodality is important. I believe that the church needs to be more synodal and less focused on Rome. I do. I just don't think that this pope is really up to that. And I don't think that's what they've been doing. A more synod- So yeah, I hope the next Pope continues with a, the with a reformist agenda of making the Catholic Church less centralized on Rome, more synodally structured, like we see more in the Eastern churches. And that it goes back to emphasizing a, um, doctrine as a pathway to sanctification, that the goal of the Christian life is to become holy, to be sanctified, uh, and in, in our in other words, a liturgical spirituality that that is exuding out of the church, calling people to high. Because it, it, it seems to me that right now what we have is a church that's lowering the bar, dumbing things down, saying, "Well, let's not get too upset about any of this kind of stuff." I think in order to differentiate ourselves from the world, the only evangelization that's going to work is when the church becomes provocative again when the church becomes a, a Christological provocation again when the church becomes a church that has something interesting freaking different from the world to offer to the world as its best light and 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 we need a pope therefore who's prophetic a bit contrarian uh but nevertheless still still is is confirmed in his belief that there is need for these reforms in the church hmm.
1: Well, it's so funny because, of course, when you use the word "prophetic" in prophetic, many quarters, yeah.
2: it would be arguing
1: that the Pope is being prophetic when the Pope is making this move. I mean, and and I mean, no, because it's the...
2: just going along with the world. That's not prophetic. Well,
1: I know, but part of the strangeness of this moment is right. the perpetual. It, it, Jonathan Peugeot often talks about, you know, sort, I'd say that the the current the current the current regime of the world. Keep keeps sort of propping up the traditionalists because you need you need to keep putting up the man so that the person can continue to speak truth to power. When in fact the person with the power is the one speaking. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's just a it's there's so many of these fascinating turns here. I wanna I wanna highlight a couple of so if anybody in there has questions, put questions in all caps or do a super chat so I can easily see it. Uh, Anthony wrote um, I think a, a good let me find it here. Anthony Anthony says um Catholics all of the world continue to fast and feast together carry on. It's you know yeah. that, that that's that's sort of this other element of um kind of a populism that says down at the grassroots we will continue to do what we do um the 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 this, this stuff going up at the top is always over time, this stuff gets sifted out and and the maintenance of the local is what's, is what's primary. This is
2: really, really, really important on another level as well. And I love that comment because so 99% of the world don't even, if you were to ask most Catholics in the world, even Americans, what do you think of the synod on synodality? They go, what in the hell are you talking about? Yeah. You know, uh, what do you think about fiducia supplicants, the new document from the D? De- what the heck are you talking about? They wouldn't know. And so this is a good caveat. But even something else here, which is this. The vast majority of growth in the Catholic Church is now taking place in the global south. OK, and so so and and I when I was covering the synod in Rome, I was talking with a, a Dominican priest from Africa, a Nigeria, who, who said to me the problem with so many of these discussions at the synod from liberal North American and Europeans, is that they reflect the petty bourgeois sexual concerns of the global North. They do not reflect the concerns of Catholics in the global South. Uh, And and so that comment that just came up about we feast and fast together, it's not specifically aiming at that particular thing, but there is a great truth in that, that Catholics around the world globally are not really all that concerned (laughs) with the issues that we are, it seems.
1: Well, and, and so Phlebas, who's another member of the Christian Reformed Church, says the CRC Senate ignored conservative minorities. Do Catholics also um, ignore conservative non-Western members? And I think that's basically what you just said. Yeah, yes,
0: and, and I would just say that they, they did apparently try to ignore the Global South, um, but the Global South just um, uh, really fought back. Pretty hard yesterday, I think um, Larry oh, would did. agree with me. Uh, yeah, that, that, the, the that global south punched back. Yeah, that, that was a huge punch back. I do not think that the Pope and his courtiers
1: expected that. Well, it, it, given that this Pope comes from the global south. Right, well, right. But yeah, right,
0: yeah. sir. <laughs> sure. So, uh, you know, but as you know, Paul, as someone who operated in Latin America, the class distinctions of Latin America do not hold in uh, Africa. Right. Right do not hold uh, in, in in the same way and so you know the fact that 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 Pope Francis comes from the global south I mean he's he's a European though you know so uh I I you know he's a European um uh yeah so I'm just gonna leave it there
1: now I was first gonna pass over father Eric's question uh-huh. um, but I, I do want to maybe contextualize it father Eric I hope I'm not doing uh, injustice to your question but um Part of, at least as a, I think to a degree, Protestants assume a level of impurity, even within their own attempting, reforming, purifying traditions, that when I sort of look at the Catholic Church, this is, I mean, as as Protestants that go, you know, who left hundreds of years ago, who still said, well, we're still kind of Catholic and, you know, we're, we're protesting against stuff in the Catholic Church. How 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 does this play? I mean, again, as a Protestant, this continues to just fascinate me. How so? So what do what do what do good Catholics think about problems in you know right mm-hmm. the center of their own hierarchy? It just baffles me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Kale, you question. want to start? You, you yeah, to start that's, that is a great question. Look, this is the reason why I care about this stuff, right? Because I um I don't know what podcast I've maybe it was last week. Paul, I don't remember, I talk so much, but, um, you know, the thing that animates me more than anything uh, is that, you know, I received um, the faith of my parents and um, I have grown that and tried to do my best to be, you know, attends to that faith and, and I'm obsessed with trying to pass that faith on to my children. Because I believe it's that important, and so. um, But I would also say that I care about the generational transfer beyond, you know, House Zeldin. Um, And uh, as as a teacher, I am deeply concerned that um, that we collectively are not doing a good job of passing on a supernatural faith to our children, and therefore, you know, the world that my kids will help build out is, I think, greatly um, threatened by um, the flippancy and seeming um, casualness of the generation who currently um sort of hold the reins of responsibility and and i'm struck is a little bit of a digression but i i it's been this image has been popping in my head the whole time and i feel like i just need to get it out there but if you look at sort of old pictures of popes right and you know it it strikes our modern sensibilities as like Completely ridiculous, right? Completely overdone <laughs> and o- overmuch, right? And you've got this <laughs> on
2: the big, big throne and everything, right? right,
0: right. But, 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 right, uh, right. So, you know, so our, all of our casual sensibilities, and look, maybe Paul, this is why I wage my denim war. I don't know. But um, part of our, we live in a very, the ethos of the casual, right? That, that, you know, we want to kind of keep it real and all that sort of stuff. And, and I get it. All right. I'm, I'm American after all, but. But if you look at those images, right, the Pope with these extremely, these these heavy mantles and this huge, heavy crown that he is wearing and these red shoes and like all of the stuff. Right. And you can like barely kind of see like a little human being that's sort of holding all of this like on him. the weight is enormous. But but that weight is serious. Right. That weight is not just symbolic. The weight is real. Right, so that the 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 holder of this office i mean remember catholics hold you know that that the, the 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 person sitting on peter's chair holds the keys to the kingdom okay this is this is like catholic 101 stuff right so can you imagine the awesome burden and responsibility of knowing that this is what you are responsible for like i'm responsible for like my wife and my kids and my students and you know and and and, and local nice little local things right and fine right this guy is responsible for like the whole thing. Right. And to see the kind of flippancy um, on display, at least from my vantage point um, means like, man, I really wish we had a Pope who would like wear all the heavy stuff and wear the red yeah. shoes and wear the heavy crowns, because at least I know that that's a guy who can feel the weight of his office. And I just don't get that sense. You know, I don't get yeah. the sense that this guy, you know, look, the, 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 the the definitive um, statement of, Pope Francis will forever be. And I, I really, I, I really believe that this will be is like, who am I to judge? Yeah,
1: it's the okay. first thing that comes to mind. Exactly, an interesting exactly. and,
0: and of course, you know, I wasn't in the plane naturally, but if, 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 you know, if I can kind of put myself back in the plane, the answer is very simple. You, you are to judge. You have been tasked with holding down this, this awesome responsibility in which you have accepted the keys to the kingdom and the keys of the kingdom mean that you can bind in heaven and bind on, on earth and loose in heaven and loose on earth. You, you are the one, you are the, you are the stopper, Like right? You were the, 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 and so, to, so to me, my anger, my frustration about this current pontificate is that it doesn't seem to me like he can see beyond his own nose and he doesn't want to be the jerk. And he doesn't, you know, I don't know. I just don't get it. And that, that's so, so why, I don't know why this Pope got to be Pope, but you know, um, so I'm not answer Father Eric's
2: uh, question. I, I several things here. First, uh, in the sense of the question from Father Eric, why does God allow evil? I, I'm assuming he means within the church, as you framed the question, Paul. And of course, Catholics have known for a very long time, at least the ones have even a modicum of understanding of church history, that popes have been scoundrels in the past, moral scoundrels. You know, they've had mistresses and children, and you know, it was very nefarious goings on financially. Maybe even had a few people murdered along the way who the heck knows it's i mean there's i think there's a list of popes and it's like 30 of them or so out of 200 some you know we're we're pretty lousy characters the the existential crisis though for many catholics today the evil that they see is 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 that okay we, we've known that popes are sinners but one of the things that makes us catholic and not protestant is precisely we view the church as this rock of truth in an ocean of uncertainty, and we point to Protestant fractiousness and say, see there, that's what happens when you don't have this rock of truth. Even the scriptures are open to all kinds of different interpretations. You need an authoritative interpreter who's infallible under certain conditions, and this rock is what holds the church together. I know many Protestants who became Catholic because of the chaos in the Protestant churches. And when John Paul was Pope, it's yes, he's this beacon of truth to which we can can all... So now along comes Pope Francis, and he seems to throw the truth part of that into question. He seems to be overturning certain long-held doctrines of the church, which implies this. The church can make huge mistakes in matters of faith and morals. We've always been taught as Catholics that the church, when teaching definitively, cannot err. On a matter of great importance in faith and morals and yet here we seem to have a papacy that is doing just that and that's then like you look at you know various people that you we all know who have left the faith all right because they couldn't negotiate the the rocky shore of a papacy that seems to be teaching error because it throws the ideology in question right into the toilet and so one theory that i that a a very conservative catholic canonist a canonist canon lawyer Edward Penton, he floated this theory that because he asked the question, why did God allow Pope Francis to become Pope of the Jorge Barcolio to become Pope of the Church? His theory is that in order to to in effect, create a purgation, hmm. to like lancing a boil, that this this descent from truth, the truth of Christ, had been modernism, whatever you want to call it, had been going on just beneath the surface of the Catholic Church for a century. John Paul and Benedict kind of held it in check OK, but it was still there. And those of us involved in the theological guild knew it was there it was still there. So Ed Penton's theory is that an allowing a pope that's it, let's we're not even going to say the pope's not a heretic, whatever, but he's allowing, he's re-empowering these people. So Penton's view is that God is simply allowing the cockroaches to come out of the woodwork all right, so that we can identify them and purge them out of the church eventually, not through a pogrom, not through inquisitions, but in a sense, for the bankruptcy of their project to finally be exposed uh, and and for Catholicism to come out of this crisis, ch- it's having itself been chastened, that no longer can we be this old-fashioned triumphalist church with a, an infallible pope on all things, a sort of oracle in the Tiber, and but nor can we simply be like a chameleon with the world. We have to be something uniquely different. Uh, and I think Ed Penton says what that different thing is as yet to be seen. Wow.
1: Wow. That's, 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 that's quite something I'm going to, I'm going to keep chewing on I mean, both of you really powerful speeches. i got to keep chewing on both <laughs> of your speeches to, I, I, this has been super helpful for me. Um, Mark, who is from Ireland, uh, what did Kale mean by Methodist envy? Because yeah. Mark is actually a Methodist, so that yeah, really I, I, caught his ears.
0: I, I should have put a little asterisk next to that little tag. I mean, I, I'm being somewhat um, flippant and facetious. And what I mean by this is that the those people who I jokingly said had Methodist envy, in mm-hmm. other words, they can dream of a church which they can, frankly, not have to have a pope, right? And so, therefore, you can kind of... Um, not you, you have more uh, wiggle room with which to make things happen that you want to have happen. And so that's, so it, it, I, it's a little, I was being a little bit flip. So no, no offense to my Methodist uh, uh, brothers and sisters, but what I mean by that is really uh, to get out of uh,
2: having to deal with a hierarchy. Okay. I and like Methodist, by the way, I love Wesleyan theology of sanctification, which is uh, far closer, I think, to the Catholic view than many other Protestant iterations. But anyway, that's Thanks just me. Having listened to a lot of I,
1: I don't quite understand this question. Having listened to a lot of debates between Catholics and Protestants, is it correct oh, yeah, that yeah. there's a notable divergence between apologists and academics?
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, academics, think... you, you know this world better than me, Larry.
2: Now, nah, well, yeah, you you find a lot of online, especially that maybe that's what they're thinking about. Yeah. You get all there's all these professional Catholic apologists out there who have now made a living off of running around giving talks in parishes, uh, engaging in internet debates with. And, and look, it, and so on. Mean, it,
0: but some of it's good. I, I I'm not I'm this not a blanket combination of 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 that sort of thing. I think you know that's I think, that's good. Yeah, I should. Yeah, be so I think the rise of the apologists. Uh, is downstream from the fact that the flock is hungry and has been um, has not been fed, right? So you can complain about Catholic online commentators and grippers and all that kind of stuff, but really that's because the shepherds have not been feeding the flock.
2: That's right. And uh, and the academics have not been paying attention to the flock either. Yeah. I mean, in this regard, yeah. I do agree yeah. with Pope Francis who said we yeah. have to get theology from behind its desk right. and, and out more into the world. Now desk theology has to be done up front. We all have to sit and study. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but too much theology, Catholic, is so abstract and metaphysical mm-hmm. and ethereal that it never trickles. I think just to my own, one of the reasons why my blog kind of took yeah, off is exactly because right. I'm a former academic theologian who then tried to use my undergrad teaching undergraduate background to translate this stuff into, into what people can understand. If I'm dismissive of the apologists, it's only because I think oftentimes, some of them are quite good, Kale's right, but yeah. oftentimes they fall into certain, I think, superficial stereotypes about what Protestants are, what Catholics are, yeah. what the Orthodox are, and I don't know. Gets a little yeah. simplistic, I think, at times.
1: McMo um, asks, aren't the trads and the libs both pointing at the hierarchy saying, see, What does it mean to love your enemy when they become your neighbor? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's what's fun. Again, part of what's fun about this corner is you part (laughs) of the goal here is you do actually get to know people. And so you have an idea where they're coming from um, with questions like this, because no questions are without context. Um, But part of, you know, obviously, this is something that we dealt with dealt with. This is something that emerged clearly in the in the debate in the Christian Reformed Church. Both sides were were saying, you know, we need we need pastoral care with respect to our um our LGBTQ friends and neighbors, but it was so clear to me that well because of obviously their position and their perspective on these, the pastoral care is going to have you know they're looking for very different outcomes and I think that points to yeah the wh- where what is the eschatology of both of these positions what is the outcome and and so that's where the propositional the, the propositional layer doesn't go away because your take on sort of a fundamental idea about this this form of relationship is in fact going to shape how you imagine you can best love them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, divide.
2: let's take the, I mean, the issue of homosexuality is a case in point and the whole brouhaha over same-sex blessings really has a more antecedent and more fundamental question. What is the best pastoral approach to our homosexual friends, neighbors, brothers, sisters, and so on? Progressives say that the best pastoral approach is to simply bless what they're doing, in a sense, that say that's their experience, that's their orientation, it's God-given, they didn't choose it, and so our task is simply affirm them in that, and and that's that. The, The traditionalists come along and say, it's a sin it's a mortal sin and they're going to hell if they continue in it and die and so our job is to tell them that they're going to hell if they don't repent because they're on the path to perdition my approach would be okay maybe you both have a point but the only thing to me it seems to me pastorally speaking that's going to appeal since i do have a conservative sexual ethic appeal to say a sexually active gay man to come out of that lifestyle would be to emphasize that the gospel is liberating and that the moral teachings of the church are there in order to elevate and lift us up into a higher order that Kale was talking about supernatural order that actually makes you joyous and happy and healthy and all those things. And so the reason why I'm telling you that I think this is the better path is because I think it's better for you. Uh, and, and, and so I think those are the sort of kind of lines of, of pastoral practice that, that we see.
0: But, 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 and and to the question, yeah, I mean, my answer to that is that both, both the, the progressives and the trads are pointing at the hierarchy and saying, see, which is exactly how the, the, uh, the, the document was received, right? You know, you had, you had, you know, both, on both sides of the quote unquote of the divide, people like, yeah, see, see, you know, so it was just a very, it was a fascinating Warshak test.
2: Yeah. I think something, too, with all these debates to keep in mind is that uh, people are not evil, (laughs) most people, right? That we're talking about our fellow baptized Christians, whether they're trads or modernists or conservatives and neocons or communio thinkers like me, uh, that we're having conversations with people that we really should care about and that they are our fellow parishioners. Uh, in Christ. And there's so many of these debates, you know, I get very pugilistic. I get very animated and people mistake that for thinking, oh, you must really hate the liberals in your, sh-. not at all. In fact, I'd rather hang out with liberals than pinched up conservative types myself. But to be honest, <laughs> with you, I'd rather sit down and have a beer and a cigar with the most flaming liberal you could find than the most Rad traddy kind of everybody's going to hell. I've been sucking. Oh, you green always green. hate
0: the rad trads, Larry. You always hate on the, the rad trads. <laughs> you
2: know, I always have to get my digs in because I've been ah, assailed yeah. by them so often. Well, uh, this is a good
0: question, Larry. I want I want to hear you this. I want I want I want to hear
1: you this. Well, and I'd like to know what the definition of schism would be because yeah, you right. know it right. all. Yeah. There's just sort of a. a in the Christian Reformed Church, I mean, we're probably looking at one basically because the whole the, the the preeminent part of the church at the center, the elites in the Christian Reformed Church are probably going to get pushed out, and so in the Christian Reformed Church, it's a big deal. But you know, the Protestant Reformation obviously was a massive thing. But what what's and so I well, always in, say well, that, churches... yeah, you know, like you
2: said, schism is important to define here. in In Catholic theology, Protestants are not in schism with the Catholic Church. Protestants are apostates who and heretics well not apostates no heretics Heretics, they are heretics their churches are heretical apostates a different thing but like the eastern orthodox we would say are schismatics they're schismatics okay meaning they have all the valid elements of holy orders and sacraments and apostolic succession like we do only they don't subscribe to the authority of the pope so let's take that definition of schism that i think it could very well be if we get a Pope Francis part two after this Pope dies and we get someone who's just like him or maybe even more liberal, then I think you're going to see, you'll probably see Catholic areas of the world, maybe like Africa and so forth, maybe getting together to elect their own Pope. I don't know. I don't know what form the schism would take or to simply say maybe a softer schism, simply saying, we we just don't recognize the authority of the current dude. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I I would say that man, you know, my gut reaction is that everything in Catholicism moves super slow the last couple of months, notwithstanding. Um, I think that this stuff is going to be protracted and drawn out. But what's also happening and you know, Blair and I have talked about this before, but there is going to be an absolute cliff dive in about 15 years, just demographically, right? So, Boomer Church is, is 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 on the way out. I mean, I just mean literally. I mean, they're they they're going to die out. And so the the whole dynamic of the Catholic Church is going to radically change. And I think, Paul, like this is one of the reasons why I love talking with you and listening to you, you know, is that, you know, in a weird sort of way, the 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 conservatives in your own denomination, you know, have just they're gonna win the war of attrition because they have children and 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 i think that that a similar thing is going to happen in roman catholicism is that the germans have money for, because of their weird tax structures right but they don't have children and i and i mean that both literally and metaphorically so that in the in the united states of america you know you know if you look at the sort of the the, the boomer millennial trend right Boomers were raised Catholic and they make they make all those movies about what it was like to live in that Catholic world and their kids didn't grow up Catholic. Right. And, and so when if they even have kids, right, just by the numbers, which is, you know, not many of them, the millennials won't have baptisms, they won't have any of these kinds of things. So, you know, so that what would a schism mean today? Like if we were if the issue were forced like right now, it could be an interesting question. But I think in 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 less than twenty years, the it's going to be a big shrug. I th- I think that that all of the I I really do believe that what happened two days ago with with the releasing of this document so sealed the deal that we will not have a Francis II, hmm. and. Yeah, I'm rarely this uh, optimistic. Um, uh, It sealed the deal. We're not going to have a Francis II. You know, I I don't know if we're going to have like a hyper reactionary one. I doubt it. I just think, you know, the way that the Catholic hierarchy works, they tend to be sort of small C conservative, not ideologically conservative, but just in in terms of their, their mood and their modus operandi. So, I don't know. I think I think we're going to have a, a kind of a, a swinging back of the pendulum on some level, and then that person is going to have to deal with the fact that there are no more kids.
1: So this is peak. This is, and you often I, see I that. It's, it's, this. This is kind of this is going to be their high water mark. This is as high as it gets, and. I do um, think that. I did well, not think that five years ago. I thought five okay. years ago
2: I was really in a dark mood. I'm just going to throw one monkey wrench into that. Students, and students, I, students. I love your analysis. You know, you know what, Kale. I hope you are right. I really, really. And like I said, oh, I yeah. don't know if my scenario of you know, people, in a sense, electing their own. Probably not. Probably not. There might be a, a sort of de facto soft of people just saying, we're not going to pay attention to this guy. But anyway, the reason why I'm a little – I love your analysis – Because when I first started off as a young theologian, say in the early 1990s, and I was going to Catholic theological conferences and ecumenical theological conferences, had Protestants too, and I would just be overwhelmed by how many theologians, 90% of them were all like liberal, progressive, you know, feminist, deconstructionist types and going, my God, does anybody believe in the the, the evangel, the gospel anymore? I, I, what the so it was despairing. And I would have older, wise theologians who are <laughs> like my age now say to me, don't worry, Larry, don't worry. Your day will come. Liberal Christianity doesn't self-perpetuate. Demographically, this is all going to die out. By the time you're my age, your generation will be in charge of things. And And this, you know what? And that day never came. And every single yeah. time I kept expecting for there to be a sea change in, in the theological guild and in, in the leadership cowardice of the Catholic Church. And that's what it's cowardice. All right. I was just devastated at every turn. And then the pre-sex scandal hit the fan right. in 2001. And you saw the depth, the depth of the cowardice of the Catholic hierarchy mm-hmm. and their complicity in yeah. moral evil of a highest order. And you begin to really despair. So I'm sorry. I hope you're right, but I'm really cynical because these these old coots have a way of clinging to power like grim death because they know it's all they have is power. That's right. It's all they have. Why right. is it therefore? Well, you got a pope from the global south who talks all the time about going to the peripheries, but when it came time to run the synod and synodality, he put an old liberal guy from Luxembourg in charge right. of it, right. who whose own church, the Cardinal Holeric whose own church in Luxembourg is in a free-falling dive into nothingness, into total nihilistic oblivion because of its liberal policies. And yet the Pope chose him, a guy who publicly said, oh, I think the church is full of it on homosexuality. We need to to change all of that stuff. That's the guy the Pope put in charge. And that's what I'm talking about. These guys clinging, clinging to power because it's the only thing they have. And so I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, I don't know how long it's going to take all right
0: well i guess what i mean i don't i guess what i was saying my optimism is not that it's going to be some sort of um new springtime to use the popular lingo i don't believe that i believe that the devastation is going to be so um massive and widespread that they're just going to be few of us losers hanging around who actually still believe this stuff right Yeah. yeah and so it's not a i'm not offering you a triumphal vision i'm offering a vision of survival you know, and I therefore and I agree with
2: you. Therefore, I don't think we're going to have schism. What I think is what we're going to have is a kind of a, 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 a parallel churches going on, yeah. a kind of underground church of people who view themselves as kind of authentic. I I don't want to use the word remnant that has so many negative connotations. Yeah, it's it's a but crude, I, dumb, yeah, you're crude and self righteous. But mm-hmm. there just there'll be people like you and I, more traditional minded Catholics, who are just going to try and fly under the radar and preserve some semblance of traditional Catholicism even if the edifice is kind of crumbling all around us yeah. yeah you yeah. know yeah
1: all right well I before I open the seagate here and let the chaos monsters in larry oh, you yeah. you're, you're welcome to stay I often do a little bit of an after show here sure. where I bring yeah, I'll stay in I'll stay yeah all right well let's uh, let's I, go ahead. go ahead go ahead I now. may have to
0: bow out because I'm I have a a date with my children so Okay. Uh, Okay.
1: So I'm going to bring in Julian, who is an old school corner guy here. One of the first conversations I ever had, and you know he he lets himself in. So whatever damage you do to your career, father, it's all you.
2: All right. (laughs) Too good. Too good.
1: Julian, let's let's have you have the first word. Julian is lived in the <laughs> Hutterite community in um, southern Alberta, and uh, one of the sharpest guys. He was a young he was a young guy when he first showed up here, and now he's a now he's a now he's
3: a seasoned dude. So seasoned Julian, Man- your thoughts? Ah, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's actually it's actually southwestern Manitoba, not not Alberta. Oh,
1: okay. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't want to misstate you or misprovince you.
3: It's a bit of a different Hutterite world in in Alberta than in Manitoba um yeah i don't know i have uh i've been following this way too closely so i have i have all sorts of thoughts i mean i can i think i can understand um some of the reactions of this being kind of really confusing and i'm not sure how sustainable the distinction is between um liturgical and non-liturgical blessings but um hearing an echo from from my understanding of of Francis's pontificate and what he's trying to do, I can just see this as a really pastoral move as a way of kind of saying you can't kind of lead with condemnation and um, especially in a Western context, who is, I mean, how can you kind of um, encounter people who don't, you can't imagine. I mean, I, I, I meet people who it's unimaginable for them to, think of homosexuality as anything other than just a normal way a person expresses themselves. And so I think in, in conservative bubbles, it's like, well, the, the moral teaching is clear. But I think Francis's instinct is right that um, if you want to encounter these people, it has to be through uh, the unconditional love of God. And that's how I kind of see him sort of trying to position himself and kind of wants to emphasize that that's how priests should be kind of moving through these issues. So I don't know, that's, that's kind of how I see.
0: Yeah, well, I think you see that with the, the desire to make this a kind of a pastoral versus theological, you know, distinctions that are trying to be drawn. Um, I ultimately don't think that those distinctions um, are real.
2: Yeah, and I would say that there is, uh, there are various levels of gradation between uh, total, of, okay, see it, Kale. Uh, between condemnation, I know very few people in the academic guild in which I move or the Catholic circles in which I move uh, who are simply going to say, "Well, oh, we're going to condemn the homosexuals. We want nothing to do with them. I've got loads of gay family members and friends, and, and uh, we've had them in our church and so on. Uh, it's no big deal. But there is a little echo going on here yeah, I'm me off trying to figure
1: out who's got the echo uh Someone but anyway say, is it you nate
2: surely it's not i lord <laughs> yeah but you know what? It's I, nate. what my response to the to that idea that the pope is just being pastoral here is this uh show me the church in the west of judgmental pharisaical finger-wagging moralizers the, the, the problem in most Western Catholic churches is, ex- is exactly the opposite, that we have a church filled with bourgeois, petty bourgeois moderns who are moral relativists of a certain kind, not necessarily of an ideological kind, but of a certain kind, especially in matters sexual. Okay, And that in a sense, the last thing in the world that the church needs to be doing right now on a pastoral level is simply greenlighting all of that and saying, well, we now approve of it. And we're calling that pastoral so that's that's the problem that i have i don't want to be condemnatory but i also don't want to send a green light that says we now approve of all of this there's no problem with any of this and i really don't care what the world thinks in one sense obviously i do care because i live in it and as a teacher i have to take it into consideration but there are many aspects of christianity that the world finds grossly incoherent and unpalatable and I don't think we should change those teachings simply because a group of people in Western culture. And once again, we're talking about the global north. Vast swaths of the global south would not share your point of view that homosexuality is just, well, just, it's just a given that it's okay. Now, I, the global south has an opposite problem of homophobia and draconian laws against it and so forth that, that has to be addressed, I think. But anyway, that's, I mean, I I sympathize. I think that is what Pope Francis is trying to do. I do. I think that's what he's trying to do. I don't think he deliberately woke up one morning and said, I think I'm going to undermine the entire edifice of Catholic moral theology in one fell swoop. I don't think, yeah, excellent. No, I don't think that's what he's doing. I just think that it's a shallow and facile distinction to make. To, between draconian, self-righteous condemnation on the one hand, and just sort of an insouciant "ah, let's live and let live" mentality on the other, I, that that's fair. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't trying to say um, that's my position. That
3: that the the traditional position is no. Your uh, point
2: was a really good one.
3: <laughs> I'm I'm just <laughs> saying I I kind of exist in two worlds. Like I exist in a very conservative, you know, Hutterite community. That kind of. Uh, that, really conservative position is sort of accepted as a matter of course, in most circles Then I go to this um, university and there I encounter people who like they couldn't even imagine how anyone could have an objection to this kind of thing. And so I sort of find myself um, kind of in, in in a world in between where I I would like to have a more nuanced conversation about this stuff. And I just don't, I just really often can't have it with either group. Um, And so But I
2: tell you what, Julian, I think I think that is a desperately needed conversation to have. And unfortunately, a lot of these other debates that we are having about this Vatican document or this kind of blessing are, as I I think I said earlier in our conversation, they're kind of masking over a more antecedent issue, which is how what is our view of homosexuality and And what what's it all about? And I think, Larry, that's part of, I mean, I really appreciated your
1: pushback on the ideal, because you're right, that ideals are never finally reached, and that is a weakness of ideal, and you're exactly right, that there are many ways that, um, you know, when the rich young ruler says to Jesus, you know, obey the law, all these things, I'm not committing adultery, I'm not stealing from my neighbor, I'm not, of course, you've got Jesus then treating it in the Sermon on the Mount as well, but the attempting to attempting to bridge that gap is you're both left on one hand you have to have sort of an antithetical divide that there and and I think that's part of what part of what has given the roman church its power in the current context where it feels like all of the major institutions have gotten so chaotic that at least with the Orthodox or the Rome or the deeply conservatives, there are bright lines and there is clarity. And at least with those bright lines and clarity, you can at least do some orienting. You can do some orientation. That's true.
2: I think my point would be, I would like your father's opinion on this too, and others have pointed this out. One of the problems that I have with Pope Francis is that he takes that insight, the pastoral insight Julian was talking about, this sort of notion that none of us reach the ideal that, you, that you're talking about. And, he, and he's trying to turn that into a kind of pastoral principle that the church is going to impose from the top down. This is now the church's official policy. We're going to be lenient on X, Y, Z. One point of fact, I think a better pastoral approach is to simply hang on to the time-honored gospel you know, truths of morality, or whatever it is, And then, what is to simply allow to take place what has always already been taking place, which is pastors on the ground making those kinds of concrete adjudications about, okay, I know this guy over here. He's been married to this woman for 30 years. They have 87 kids. He was married to this other woman for three days (laughs) 30 years ago. They can't get an annulment. What the hell am I supposed to do? You know, then the priest comes forward and says, you know, hey, Jerry, go ahead and come up for communion. I think it's okay. This has been going on from time immemorial, but now it's being sort of turned into a principle. And that's then up unsettling people and up making it so, well, what's going on? Can anybody just now go to communion? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, there's an old,
4: old adage in Roman law that hard cases make for bad law. And, you know, as a canon lawyer in training, I'd like to, uh, to hold that up. There's also something that I cannot wrap my head around, but seems to be very consistent is the difference between the approach to negative moral norms in kind of Anglophone Catholicism and Spanish speaking Catholicism. (laughs) Right. Yep. Yeah. Because uh, so what's a negative moral norm? That's a thou shalt not. Right. And, And like the way I was trained in seminary and the way I've always thought is thou shalt not is always possible you always have the option to not commit adultery. You always have the option to not steal because that's a matter of not doing something. Those are good options. Those are good (laughs) options. That's right. And and it appears right now, all of us are doing that. So you can always have the default betting, you know, and then going to on the other side of these. And it seems like Anglo speaking Catholics are like really Lobbed onto that really hold on to that tight especially those of us who were inspired by veritatis splendor when say, john paul ii reiterated the perennial teaching on this matter that you always have the option to to not do the knot um and somehow it just seems different in spanish speaking catholicism and i don't understand it at all like yeah, they just uh, they're not as worried about it or they handle it differently or they don't think uh, I about i just it remember that
2: way. I lived in the Dominican Republic for a year learning Spanish. <laughs> and I remember I uh, was sitting outside of a church in Santiago and, you know, the, all the doors are open, these big arches. There's no screen, no doors. And as I was, I was a seminary I was going to go to mass and all the women and children were inside the church going to mass. All the men were outside on the steps of the church, smoking cigarettes and playing dominoes and, and drinking beer. And, and I sh- struck up a conversation with these guys, and I said, you know, don't you guys go to Mass? And they said, they said well, we are going. We are. <laughs> this is us at Mass, <laughs> right? And, and plus, there was a corporate sense of family. My wife and my kids are in at Mass kind of as proxies for me, and I'm out here having a cigarette and playing dominoes, and I'm close enough to the action that this counts. So I, you know, but as an Anglophone thinker, I'm thinking, but isn't that a mortal sin that you're missing mass on a Sunday? That was the, that was the American coming. So you're right. You're absolutely right. Well, before I
1: bring Nate in, I want to I just want to respond a little bit to Larry. I mean, part of what happened in the Christian Reform church, too, is that ironically, it was the pushing of the issue by the progressives. Where many moderate CRC clergy who had a fair amount of flexibility at the local level to deal with these issues suddenly because we had to make the we had to make the permission law. Yeah. S- then suddenly the conservative pushback then said, No, we have to make sure we close the door tight. And so many of us moderates on the ground that of course have been dealing with many of these issues, our entire ministry are like, well you know you have really handcuffed me and actually done a disservice to many of the people who are struggling with many of these issues right. locally trying to find their way through life now i actually have less flexibility on the ground than i had before and so i i remember i remember the progressives winding up to put go to battle and i thought i know the res- I, and i know the numbers in the church you progressives are going to get slaughtered and now suddenly as a moderate i have less yeah. tools and so I, it's to, to bring back julian's point the the part of what happens in this is the polarization which actually makes working through processing helping individuals find their way through you know a very messy situation even more difficult for the church so
2: it does make it more difficult and he says something interesting you know it's 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 obviously, with regard to, say, homosexuality, it's a, it's a deeply and profoundly pastoral issue. But there are also ideological and theological components at play here so that one of the reasons why you know, all of these more lenient ideas, pastorally speaking, are sought by the progressives to be turned into the very law of the church is because they view it as a matter of justice, that unless we make this into a rule, there is an injustice that is taking place. And therefore, there is a theological and an ideological component to this here, all right? And and so it's not entirely wrong to simply be saying, no, wait a minute, what is the church thinking theologically about all this? But then down on the pastoral level, why that then becomes problematic, where it simply said, allowing gay relationships just to take place is God's will, and we're going to say so, and it's now part of the justice. I have been involved in counseling uh, gay students when I was teaching undergraduates, (laughs) thousand. We had a, I don't mean to cliche, but our biggest major was theater. So we had lots and lots and lots of gay guys on campus. Right. And so they were having my theology classes and they'd be in my office and they'd sense some dude that maybe would be willing to listen to them. And it, what was interesting to me is of course, like 75% of them were like sexually active and so on. And just kind of were struggling with the church's teaching. Fine. Got it. And so we'd chat about that. The 25% of them, maybe even a little bit more, and this wasn't just imbibing the ideology of their oppressor. Really, didn't want not I'm not going to say didn't want to be gay, not conversion therapy or stupid things like that. But simply didn't want to live out that lifestyle. They wanted to live, you know, according to Christ, the traditional Christian norms, and they were serious about it. These were not super ego guilt induced sort of self loathing types. Just people who really wanted to be called to a higher level of sanctification. In talking with those people, now whenever they would go into a church where it was simply, hey, you can do whatever you want, they felt thrown under the bus. They felt betrayed by the institutional church for, in a sense, saying, because they're already getting it from their gay friends, you sap. You fool! You're going with these dumbass Catholic—oh, sorry—these dumb Catholic rules, and so on and so forth. You're just a—you're just a tool of heteronormative thinking, and so so they already are getting it from their side, and, and even family members. And then they turn around in their churches and say, "Don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. It's no big deal. In fact, well, bless it for you. Go on, you know." And they feel really betrayed by all of that. And, and I remember
4: when I was in seminary, I, I ended up running across a blog of a guy who had been in, you know, kind of active gay lifestyle and, and, you know, all of that, tons of sexual partners, yeah, anonymous encounters, all of that. And, and the overwhelming feeling I got from, from reading it was that he was deeply lonely and that lifestyle wasn't satisfying to him. You know, it was chasing after uh, chasing after the wind. That's why they came up with gay marriage to try and, you know. um, Help with that, I guess. But I I don't think that's actually the the answer there. And so I don't know. It seems like uh, the compassionate thing is always to to call people towards um, uh, Christ and uh, in Catholicism, celibacy isn't a bad thing.
2: Yeah, that's true. And something that can be achieved. Mm-hmm. All
1: right, Nate, Nate, you're in here, and actually you were on a list, I, I thought of you today, but it, and you can't always get time, so I'm glad yeah, you joined I ha- us. I,
5: I, yeah, I happened to catch the tail of it right before my lunch break while I was uh, working, in, and, and now it's, I'm on my lunch break. And I just like, first of all, I just wanna say that a lot, this, the framing of the the discussion on the Catholic side is way healthier, even when it's going badly than it is on the protestant side because pretty much nobody on the catholic side will talk about the metaphysical absurdity of gay marriage because it's just like it's that's a metaphysically incoherent concept and so i definitely would be opposed to that however however i am very sympathetic to the idea of a blessing same-sex friendships um because of the the long theological tradition of christian friendship and kind of having like a don't ask don't tell kind of position toward like whether there's a sexual component to that friendship or not milbank is john milbank has advocated for that kind of position for a long time and it's it's not a very popular position because it doesn't make either the conservatives or the progressives happy um and um i think that's probably a sign that it's that it's on to something and i would also say to father eric's point about edge cases making bad law i think that's precisely why a more pastoral approach which is what i think the church is trying to stumble its way toward even if it's making some mistakes in the process is the way to handle it because precisely because of that so and i also what? think it's like at some point we have to just deal with the reality that it's like I don't really know if there's a serious 21st century person who was willing to put homosexual relations on the same moral plane as, as murder. It's really for, I mean, at most it's a more like having a second piece of cheesecake when you shouldn't have. And that's just the, that's just the reality. And I think anyone who's I, I anyone who, anyone who's like a 21st century North American person who tries to say otherwise, I'm, I'm like I have like a deep distrust of that. And just to be honest, like first of all, a couple things, a, I'm an Anglican, so I don't have an absolute dog in this fight. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing is, although I was Catholic, but that's that's a long story. <laughs> and I still have a lot of theological sensibilities that are Catholic. Uh, and the other thing is is like I, I mean, I can't be unbiased on this because like I, my dad is gay. And like, I have, I have two gay daughters, so, uh, you know, this is not something that I can just like, it's not just a merely academic issue for me. And I think that's, that's the case for a lot of people on this, but I just wanted to be upfront about that. But I do appreciate like the discussion and I think I probably agree with like, probably like 90% of what Larry said, but I wouldn't be quite as critical because I do think that like, even though there might be some stumbling and some mistakes that the like the it's intending to do something that's good and necessary
2: i don't think it's intended to do what is good and necessary and that's the difference because i do live within the catholic church and i don't trust the people that are pushing this because i i don't think that their concerns are necessarily as pastorally wonderful as yours but anyway all that by the side i would like to say you know, uh, there's a, a, a Catholic, uh, her name is Don Eden Goldstein, who's a lesbian woman who lives a chaste sort of life and all that Catholic, who's long been an advocate for, you know, that whole tradition of holy friendships and, you know, and so on. And she's now a big time fan of this new document. I just saw something she wrote the other day. Along the same lines you're talking about here that, uh, and and, and Mil- I love Milbank. He, he's a great theologian. And that maybe there is something that, and I've long said too, that I'm open and totally sympathetic with the idea of two, two gay men that want to live with each other just out of companionship. I mean, loneliness is a horrible thing. It is a terrible crushing, mind numbing, soul crushing thing, you know? And, and so I have no problem with people loving each other in holy friendship and all that kind of stuff. No, I, and I know there are others in the Catholic side who say, no, no, too much occasion of sin and all that kind of stuff. Eh, well, uh, maybe that's where my own insouciance might come in a bit, uh, because I think uh, the desire to overcome loneliness uh, is, in fact, a way to perhaps pursue a chaste lifestyle even better. It's hard to be chaste when you're super lonely and depressed and and all those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm not opposed to the notion of of a church that is more congenial to those kinds of things and maybe offering up a blessing. But I just think also that the way that this document landed without consultation, without broader Episcopal input, without a years-long sort of participation in developing concepts along these lines, and then to end the document and say, and that's it, we're not going to talk about it anymore, conversation over, just throws this document like a thud into the culture wars and says okay now tear each other apart and go for it and i was, and I, I think it given our cultural atmosphere it is catholic progressives are immediately spinning this as, okay we're going to bless the gay marriages now it's like oh well okay fine whatever anyway julian you were gonna say something i read one
3: take that was saying the the bit on the end about uh, there'll be no further word on this was a was a kind of um nod to the german kind of portion of the church and was saying uh, yeah. You guys want to go further with blessings? Well, this is this is how far we are going to go. And, and notice also how it's kind of reaffirmed the, the traditional teaching throughout the document. So this is kind yeah. of saying this is actually yeah. directed towards the German church.
2: But, Julia, yeah, I agree. with. I, I think a lot of people pointed this out. This might be the Vatican trying to get ahead of the Germans or whatnot uh, with something more compassionate than what the church has done before, but not quite as, you know, full-on, full-scale gay marriage as the Germans are doing. That's all well and true. I think you're right. But you don't get to play like that anymore. The fact is we have to talk about this. You know? You yeah. just can't throw this document out there and and and, and say, okay... That's it. We're done talking. Because the document is ambiguous in spots. It's it's self-internally contradictory in spots. We're blessing couples but not relationships. And we're blessing this part of the relationship but not that other part of the relationship. And it's a blessing. And, and we understand it comes from a priest. But it's not really a blessing blessing like Princess Bride. It's, you know, mostly dead, not dead dead. It's like mostly a blessing, not really a blessing. I mean, come on. We need to talk about this more.
1: Well, and part of well, Sorry. Yeah. Part, of, part of you know what I've been at in the Christian Reformed Church for a very long time before the YouTube and everything is that part of what we're struggling with is how something like the Christian Reformed Church or the Roman Catholic Church can actually process these conversations in a healthy way. And so part of, Larry, what I appreciated you brought in was, of course, I didn't have the perspective of you know canon law and 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 how synods and the papacy all those things function together and so i think religious structures and churches are really wrestling with how do we process this in a way that affords the kind of nuance the kind of freedom but yet the kind of order and structure that we also need and and I think many, many churches are wrestling with, you know, I, you know structure, how to carry this through. And, and so I, I see that we here. Are.
2: And we have to have a deeper conversation about uh, Christian anthropology. What does it mean to be a human being? What is a human being in the light of Jesus Christ? And that has to be an ongoing conversation, big time. Because it, then, aren't otherwise we're just talking in deontological terms about this sexual norm and that sexual norm. Right. That right. all has to be grounded in a much more expansive sacramental vision, Christological vision of what a human being is. And in that regard, damn, there's a conversation that has to take place. Holy cow, we've just started scratching the surface of that conversation.
5: Well, I wonder, Larry, if like the entire issue isn't like downstream t- for, toward a, from a more general crisis in, in, in chastity as a concept, because let's not pretend that the heterosexual world doesn't yes. have a, a struggle with chastity in, in, in our time.
4: It's almost like 20 years after we started yeah. exposing pornography to children, uh, we're having a crisis <laughs> of sexuality in the West. You know,
2: who could have yeah. seen oh, this coming? Well,
5: yeah, yeah. almost uh, yeah. as if. Yeah,
2: Exactly. That's- oh my god, yes. I think somebody, I can't remember who it was, said that you know, most most married people in in the west have no right to be Finger wagging towards gays or whatever. Given the fact that for the past 60, 70 years we've just given a wink and a nod to divorce culture, cohabitation culture, let's have sex in the back seat of my car. Well, well in high school culture, you know, uh, yeah, we the heterosexuals are, have no corner on chastity.
5: Well, and we have been, ads. We have ads with with, with hypersexualized seventy-year-olds, and we think that's normal.
2: Or hypersexualized fourteen-year-olds, right? And and think that's normal you know, and just put that out there. Uh, Crazy. Yeah, I know I agree with you, Nate, 100%. Uh, And and I'm, you know, and I'm very traditional in in terms of sexual morality and stuff. I believe in uh, Thomistic virtue ethics and Thomistic natural law theory and all that as as the sort of basing point upon which moral theology has to build. But the Second Vatican Council called for also a reform in that kind of moral theology, to take into greater consideration certain phenomenological categories, subjective categories, and so forth, motivations. Oh, uh, Father I mean, like, one, of, one delivered. of Go ahead, Father. Father, survey pink hairs delivered. Exactly. Yeah. Survey pink cares has written a series of wonderful books uh, that have reformed moral theology along those lines uh that that, you know in terms of virtue ethics and so on that i think are really wonderful but anyway i do have have to to run. go ahead
3: yeah i I had a i i wonder if um if traditionalists or conservatives in the conversation would acknowledge that um there the i mean we often emphasize that the church has had a consistent moral teaching for 2000 years or whatever but um the fact is when it comes to uh, how we treat homosexuality, how we think about homosexuality, our thinking has, has changed. Um, and I think in, in, in ways that we have to acknowledge are better. Um, and so you sometimes hear people saying, yeah, I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, Larry, of, of how people like to say, well, in the African context, this is just not an issue um, yeah. in terms of accepting uh, homosexuality, but they, but they have other issues. And so I wonder... Um, Polygamy. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking more in terms of homophobia, but, but Well, I that wonder, too, yeah. I mean, how does, how does something like um, thinking of, of sexual orientation change the conversation? Or how does thinking of homosexuality as something that shouldn't be criminalized or the possibility of civil unions yeah. or, or that kind of thing? Um, I wonder how, how all of that fits into the conversation.
2: Well. I think it's all part of the conversation. Um, you know, sexual orientation. Uh, to me, that's—I don't know. We could talk at length about this. Uh, I, I know people that are involved in the the psychology of of, of human sexuality. One of my best friends in the world is a psychologist who deals with this kind of stuff, and he's really secular, <laughs> very agnostic. But he bristles at the idea that sexual orientation is this decentralized thing reified thing that becomes ensconced in a human being and 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 he's not in favor of conversion there he's not saying that what he's saying well, that's what is the queer movement is saying as well yeah it's saying that there is just so much fluidity within within certain boundaries there's all this fluidity that that takes place and so we have to sort of avoid these reifications. but all that is part of the conversation the simply the psychology of human affect affectations human uh, subjective sexual orientations and so on that's all got to be part of the conversation but also the church's traditional more teaching has to be part of the conversation in my experience more often than not it's precluded from the conversation from the get-go from the opening bell nope you're just out of bounds you're not allowed into the conversation because you don't play by our ground rules and and, and i think that's a problem I, I can maybe understand where that's coming from because maybe of a hurt, certain history of hurt, uh, but still, you know, I, I often feel disenfranchised in conversations uh, because, well, you you don't immediately acknowledge the full justice owed to this community. Like, well, and, and my
4: point of view is that this is no time for caution. That in the West, all of the worldly principalities and powers are pushing this as hard as they can and um actually it's going to hurt people and we need to be bold in proclaiming the goodness of god's plans for marriage and sexuality and all that at the same time helping people bear their crosses and speaking of that i've got to go help somebody bear their cross that's what that
2: phone call was about so oh okay well thank you father yeah thank you Father. thanks for i having i you. i have to go soon too but i i want to end with this which is this is a very complex very, very complex conversation in so many levels. Uh, my, my best friend in the world, I grew up with in my neighborhood of Lincoln, Nebraska, is a gay guy. He lives in Brooklyn now. I'm not going to mention his name in case he happens to listen to this. Uh, but, I've, God, I've known him now for 60 years. And I remember I was in Rome. Uh, I was there to study abroad with my students, and he tagged along. He, was in my, he lived in my apartment for three weeks, a free apartment in Rome for three weeks. He loved it. Uh, So, by the way, no one can accuse me of being a homophobe. I had a gay man living in my apartment with me for three weeks. All right. So anyway, we we got into these great conversations. And at one point in the conversation, he said something, and he's an actively gay guy, atheist, you know, the whole secular thing. And he said to me, because I was talking about, you know, maybe I could learn some things from you about the evolution of Christian ideas and so forth on this. And he goes, here's what I want you to know. And this shocked me. He goes, I don't want the Catholic Church to change at all. I want it to be compassionate and all that, but I don't want it to change his teaching because he says, I'll tell you why, because it's important to me, even as an actively gay atheist man who has no moral values. And I mean, he has got moral value, meant no sort of dogmatic sexual strictures is I'm glad that your baseline is there. I'm glad that it's there and I don't want it to go away because I think that it's important. And that just blew me, what that showed me was just how enormously complex human beings are and therefore how enormously complex motives are and ideologies are and the conversation is. It's enormously complex.
5: Uh, That's that, you've you've pointed to conversation before and I really think that's important because we're really, like the the level of conversation, there's not a lot of conversation that happens. There's a lot of shouting ideological points back and forth across culture war divides that happens, but there isn't a lot of serious conversation. And your point about the divide between between the West and the global South on this is, is super important too, because part one of the things that's underlying this is like a deeper conflict between modernity and tradition. And we have to sort that out at some point, because especially as modernity is collapsing, if we just just immediately figure if if our answer is oh then tradition must have had it all right and we go back and we just embrace tradition fully with everything that comes along with it we'll forget that's that the right. Reformation happened for a reason and that not everything that modernity stands for is a bad thing and that's part and that the conversation is how we're going to negotiate this moving on to whatever is after. <laughs>
3: that's I often, true I, often, I, often I don't know if you were i come from i come from a world that's closer to medieval catholicism than anyone else in this conversation and
2: i can affirm <laughs> tradition does not get any. doesn't get everything right even though it's beautiful in some ways yeah. yeah i don't know what at what point you came into our our, our earlier show nate but uh, i talked at length uh, some length anyway about in catholicism we had this great divide between like the progressives but then we have our radical traditionalists who simply want to say God. let's just scorched earth get, get rid of the modern world and go back to some sort of romanticized catholic something or other from i don't know 1850 or 1930 i don't know i don't know but it's still but, modern <laughs> yeah I mean, well the that, scale, that's right? the irony of it right <laughs> that, like, that we pointed that actually, out <laughs> yeah, yeah that's the irony of it is how thoroughly modern they are in their thinking and yep. all of this as well yep, but i tell so. you what guys I, I i do have to i have to run there's somebody in the car but uh i'm running up against a hard break here myself i've got some things i gotta go do Good well thank you again, Larry. larry. I, I really appreciate you coming on and it was great oh to my meet god you. what a great group of guys i Good really weekend. really enjoyed this conversation thank you very much all right take care larry bye-bye
6: thanks larry
2: all right we're gonna land the plane soon here but i didn't want to
1: you know Chad. after i made liberal use of your video this morning i wanted to make sure i let you back in
6: I just have a really weird question because I was reading uh, John uh, John First John or whatever the one right before Acts the gospel of John yes and in in there um, it talks it says like uh, they keep mentioning the disciple that Jesus loved and like I don't know it just was kind of weird because I was like what does that even mean like I thought like you loved all of them but why did you love John, or whoever it is he's talking about? I don't know if it's Peter or John. I can't tell. Not Peter. Okay. Okay, so what does that mean, uh, and how does it relate to this conversation?
1: That's a I don't know impression. how it relates to this conversation, <laughs> but there's a lot of people that suspect that it was John, the author of the gospel. I mean, that's yeah. part of it, and, um, you know, in some ways... Don't moms love all their kids the same and then they don't? Um. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not trying, I'm really not trying to be
6: rude on asking. It just it struck me because, like, I, I was just, I'm trying to prepare for this thing with Neil tonight and I was reading the Gospel of John and I was like, what does that even mean? It, yeah. it just, it's repeated several times. So, is this one of those things that has been brought up before, but nobody likes to talk about, it
1: or what? Well, people like to talk about it. I wouldn't say nobody doesn't like to talk about it, but there's there's no there's no answer that satisfies a lot of people <laughs> with respect to it.
5: I read a lot of weird things, so when when Chad said in the context of that of this conversation, my mind went to a different place because there are a lot of people who have a lot of weird fanfic about that whole beloved disciple thing. So what?
6: Well, so well. Great conversation,
1: guys. It's kind of gay, but whatever. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Chad. Bye. Bye, Chad. All right. Last, last thoughts. Great to see you again, Julian. It's always yeah, good, to Julian, good to see your face, hear me. your voice. You too. Yeah, it's been too long.
5: Julian was the first person, one of the first people I ever had a conversation with.
3: Yeah. I think no. I remember Nate. Uh, we had a interaction in the comment section, and you were you were really angry about something, and then I kind of. And I, I, responded. And I got together
5: with you and Michael and had that conversation on radical orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah I think so.
3: So what, what have you been up to, Julian?
1: Same thing, basically? Uh, yeah, I'm,
3: uh, I've, uh, I'm in my, what is it, second semester of, well, second term of university, so I'm, I'm off for the winter break right now. So Good. What are you studying? Uh, English and philosophy. A double oh, okay. major. All um, right. We just had a class on Aquinas and Wittgenstein, which oh. is an interesting pairing. If you know any of those, any of those two guys, um, are you enjoying it? Yeah, yeah, I would say I'd say so. <laughs> it's university. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Um, is it public university? What university are you going to? It's a it's a kind of liberal Christian university. Is the way I describe it. Okay. Um, kind of a liberal arts university, but it's a really good. Pretty good kind of really strong in the humanities kind of really small um yeah it's good uh yeah i i kind of think with my interests uh, a public university wouldn't be as good as a fit because there'd be less kind of theology or philosophy i could say
1: here's here's nate's family aiding <laughs> <eating> in
3: <laughs>
5: Thank you, Oh, was I angry? I didn't think it was real.
3: You were just ranting about something in the comment section. Oh, that's, that's, gotcha, yeah.
5: gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I can be. I I can come off angry and text in a way. If I were saying the same words and you saw my face, it would not seem. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, 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 I have a
5: rhetorical style that if you're just reading it in text, it can seem angry. But then if I'm saying those same words and you see me my face, I'm smiling while I say
3: it. You've probably spent too much time in the David Bentley Hart circles, and it's been four <laughs> years. <laughs> <laughs> rhetorical style,
2: probably. <laughs>
1: well, anyway, thank yeah. you, thank you, gentle people, for joining the live stream, this and I hope the, I hope this the conversation was good, one, was good.
5: This was a good one.
1: Yeah, it's it's so you're right. I mean, I want to have better conversations with respect to this, obviously for my own denomination, but also for for the church at large, because, you know, working our way through this at all the different levels and how the different levels impinge on each other. um, and, And part of what I think we wrestle with is, you know, you mentioned, you know, don't ask, don't tell. One of the things I think we we struggle with is that there is the modernity makes everything upfront. You know, you know everything has to be upfront. And not everything should be upfront. And there has to be a dance of um that which is spoken and left unspoken. and and we I think we really struggle with that. and so, and I think religious institutions are are deeply struggling with that. so.
5: Um, anyway. Well, I think one of the, the first steps toward having a productive conversation about it is to take the to take the metaphysical nonsensity of gay marriage off the table and just remove it from the discussion, yeah. because there there are ways that we can talk about genuinely, like having compassion for homosexual people that don't like undermine the entire symbolism of marriage and the metaphysical structures of the universe.
1: Right. <laughs> All right. Well, and I agree. I remember talking to my kids when Prop 8 came along California and they're talking about gay marriage. And I said, I don't really think there's such a thing. I, it's yeah, it's it it's a, nobody in the ancient world would have that there are plenty of gay relationships. Nobody would have right. connected that with marriage. Now, there's obviously a, a a reason why that was put together. And I can understand that. But it's 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 it does i think you're right nate that it right. doesn't and i'm not I'm, I'm not denying the, the
5: existence of committing and committed and loving gay relationships that's not what i'm doing at all i'm just saying whatever it is it's not a marriage but we can now let's start the conversation hey it, it's it, it's not a marriage let's acknowledge that now we
1: can start talking about the issue yeah so hmm. go ahead joe you want to say something
3: yeah, I have lots of things to say, but I don't know if I can say them. <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking of um, of Larry's comment about his friend who kind of appreciates the church as as having the way I was hearing him as having a kind of stable stabilizing force, and I I have to admit that makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I I kind of I don't like I I can see how the church comes to play the, this sort of stabilizing role, but I for me that exists in a kind of tension with um what christianity is supposed to be and 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 so i find myself you know in this more liberal place and it's uncomfortable i find it deeply uncomfortable to be the kind of conservative in the room um and and i find it hard to i find it uncomfortable to I'm, i'm being vulnerable here to to kind of be responsible i guess would be the the way to say it.
5: That's a lot like my, that's a lot like my experience entering into Evergreen as a freshman. Where well, there you're I've the, been you're, a progressive the... my whole life
1: and all of a sudden I was the conservative in the room. Oh, I
3: see. Oh, in Evergreen, right. Uh, that's yeah. been my
1: story in the Christian Forum Church. Suddenly <laughs> I'm a conservative. It's like, how did I be? I remember the first guy, he was Mr. Reagan, the guy who became Mr. Reagan before his, his video. I'm doing this talk with him and he's like, you know, something about, he, he called me a conservative and I was like, I'm not a conservative, you know, but, (laughs) but you're making videos about Jordan Peterson. Does that make me conservative? Uh, Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and so I don't know
3: how to feel about this idea of the church as, as a sort of stabilizing force because it feels like that kind of creates a tension where on the one hand you have to be sort of propping up these, I mean, when it comes to this conversation, on the one hand, you have to sort of constantly be sort of propping up these institutions, but on the other hand, you, you have this kind of radical freedom to love people who are different from you, and I, I'm not talking about homosexual. I'm talking about the Christian freedom to to just encounter and love people wherever they're from. And I think I find I feel a tension between the mode of that mode that says we need to sort of uphold these traditions because they're under threat, and this other. What for me is the more Christian mode of, you're you're sort of free to encounter and to well that's to love others. That's kind and of a sense. I don't know. That, does that make sense to anyone that, else? But that's uh, yeah. that's
5: to me, yeah. like your hint, you're gesturing toward the sense of tradition that David Bentley Hart points toward in Tradition and Apocalypse, right? Where you, where tradition is informed by its final cause, and there's and you and you want stability, but you don't want stagnation. So that's the trick. And and and. If you if your view of tradition is only backward looking about what has come before, you have you run the risk of stagnation and 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 you miss movement toward the final cause that is actually the more critical way of understanding what a tradition is, because it only is what it is when it's become what it is to be.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And and what you pointed out too. I mean, it's so interesting to me, and I love the way you said it, Nate. I mean, there's a lot of people in our realms who are like, oh, if the Protestant Reformation had only never happened, it's like, no, sorry, that Reformation was happening all over the place. That was a big breakage. That's sort of like the the San Francisco earthquake, but there are lots of other earthquakes going on within and out out the Catholic institution. But these questions that you pointed to, Julian, in terms of Larry's friends saying, yeah, I want this to stay the same over here, but... You're you're saying that
3: as someone who is not living within it. And he's probably saying that as someone who appreciates having that stable tradition in order to push against, like that he enjoys sure. that. He likes being in the yep. oh, okay, I'm in the critical. I like that you guys are sort of doing your own thing over here because I like pushing against it. And, 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 and the think, ra- yeah. the reason
1: I was asking about a blessing was because, of course, one of the big differences, okay, I'm a Christian reform minister, I'm not a priest. And and in the conversations about women in in church office and these kind of i keep pointing to the fact that i am not a priest because a priest is a different thing than what i am we have the priesthood of all believers and so when it comes to this blessing question um it's and and again i don't have any oh here's the solution i'm not handing out solutions to people i'm just saying just pay attention to these other pieces that are around there because they are impacting all of this that we're talking about, and to, to at least know a few of the other things in this dark room maybe means you won't bump your toe or at least bash somebody else's head into a piece of furniture. So stop the live stream pounds on that door. <laughs> 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 What's the matter, Joe? Are we keeping yep? <laughs> oh, <hey, Joe. laughs>
3: we're talking too loud.
1: Oh, okay. We should stop the live stream. Yeah. So okay. but thank you all. It was so good to see you, Julian. You see you again, um, Julian.
3: Good to As see yeah, it always I, yeah. I'm. It would be lo- lovely to to see more of you guys, but I'm always busy with something else these days. But yeah, yeah. All right. Take care, y'all. Right. See ya. Goodbye.